take their seats so we can begin the meeting. I think uh, if William's coming, right? I got a text from somebody stuck on uh, on uh, Water Drive. So I think William, we've been using that excuse right? I think William's coming. But we'll go ahead and get started. Let me ask everybody to please take their seats. My name is Aubrey Lane. I'm Secretary of Transportation, and as such, I'm also the Chairman of the Commonwealth Transportation Board. And as we do so uh, several times during the year, we hold these uh, meetings across the Commonwealth. Uh, obviously, today we're in Hampton Roads, my hometown, uh, so I get to sleep in my own bed for a couple of nights, which is uh, uh, really good. Um, uh, next uh, month we're going to be in Northern Virginia, and we typically hold these across the Commonwealth uh, several times. Um, extremely pleased to be here. I think we have a very good program for our members today. Uh, besides the workshop that we'll be having today, this afternoon, you get a chance to tour uh, some of the uh, uh, Portsmouth, uh, the tunnel, uh, the downtown uh, uh, tunnel renovations which are magnificent. The construction is going extremely well. It's a good chance to do that. While you're there, you're going to be right close to uh, Portsmouth Marine Terminal, uh, which is uh, part of our Port of Hampton Road. We're going to have a presentation on that this morning. So I think it's a great afternoon. This evening, we're going to see a beautiful site in Virginia Beach where we have dinner. And then, of course, tomorrow, we will then have our formal workshop where we'll do the action items uh, in that regard. So, uh, again, I think we had a really good, informative uh, couple of days for you. Before we get into that uh, story today of today's meeting, before I call it the order, I don't want to have you all stand so we start to say the Pledge of Allegiance, please. Pledge of Allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands. Okay, with that, we'll formally call to order the workshop session of our meeting. As we all know, we will have public comment that that precedes our formal uh, workshop, which will be tomorrow morning. Uh, that starts at uh, 8.30, uh, unless we have not gotten through all today's agenda items on the workshop. It may start a little later, but uh, that's our plan. So, uh, with that, uh, our first presentation today, I believe, is uh, Mr. John Reinhardt with the Port of Virginia. A little bit of background <coughs> information. Uh, obviously, you all know about the Port of Virginia. It's a strategic, strategic asset, uh, not only for the Commonwealth, but actually for our nation. Um, and uh, uh, one of the Governor McCullough's primary objectives is to make this the best and uh, uh, one of the largest east coast, uh, ports on the East Coast uh, in that regard. It's, it's key to the economic development plan uh, that he has going forward. Mr. Reinhardt's been with us a little over a year, doing a, a, a very good job. A uh, couple of things to point out, though. Um, uh, Mr. Reinhardt uh, was supposed to be a member of this board, at least his position. But of course, uh, with House Bill 1887, uh, Mr. Ron Hart will, uh, will no longer be on here. And that is because this CTP, we do not control the port, uh, the money for the port. It has its own separate board. From a governance standpoint, uh, did not think it appropriate that we would have oversight uh, on something that we don't actually control the money. Uh, Mr. Reinhardt does serve on the HR TAC, the local commission, as an ex officio, so in terms of transportation, court wishes are represented 
uh, in that agenda. Of course, we will work with them as we go forward uh, with the state on that. But I did think it's important that you understand what's going on before, uh, particularly from the statewide level, as we make uh, road and other type rail decisions, particularly how it affects the court, how case the money. So that's why I wanted Mr. Reinhardt to bring us up, uh, up to speed. Uh, and that's, of course, at the conclusion, I'm sure he will allow us to take any questions from the board, too. So with that, Mr. Reinhardt, welcome. Uh, I also should say Mr. Reinhardt allows me to have a regional office here at the Court of Virginia. Uh, so I get to see him quite often. It's a pleasure to work with him and his board. So welcome to this morning. Thank you very much, Mr. Secretary, members of CTV. Uh, as Aubrey mentioned, we want to just give you a recap of what's going on in the Court of Virginia so that you will understand what we're trying to do for the Commonwealth and what we need to do more of. And we're going to see if this doesn't work. We'll use that one. Thank you. Um, we'll go through the location, our growth trends, give you a terminal update, talk about the economic force, what we're trying to do for the future, and also take your questions at the end of the presentation. We have a statewide footprint. We have six active facilities in the Port of Virginia. As you can see, we have the four deep water ports here in the Hampton Roads area. We have the Port of Richmond in the capital. We have the Front Royal Virginia Inland Port. We also have a seventh facility that is under development for the future, which is Crane Island. And we'll talk more about that when we talk about dredging. The Port of Virginia has such a magnificent set of natural advantages that we need to, as a commonwealth, take uh, more advantage of. We are post-Panamax ready. We have 50 foot of water. And we're in the early stages of permitting to deepen to 55 foot. There was a permit put in place in the eight, late 80s for us to do this, but we need to update it. So that study is underway. If you look at where we're situated, we're only 18 miles from the open sea. We have no overhead obstructions. Our central location works well for being a gateway to the middle part of the United States and also bringing those products to the export market. We have a pretty strong terminal infrastructure, but it's dated, and we need to do more to make sure that it's efficient. We are served by two Class 1 railroads. Fortunately, NS already has double stack to the Midwest. CSX is still working, and we have the ability to expand our reach as a port. We have a good leadership team. Uh, Aubrey is always at our board meetings. He shares an office, but he also works closely with our board, and you can see the board members here, as well as the direct leadership team that we have. And this team has been put together, some of them before I, was, I came on board, the others since I came on in February of 14. And I think we have the right resources to start to guide the port forward. We had a record year in 2014. We did handle 2.4 million TEUs. You can look at the three conveyances. Ray, rail containers went up by 4%. Barge containers up by 18%. Truck volume was up by 9%. And ship calls, even though the ships are getting larger, we increased the ship calls in this port by 5%. So we have a strong volume growth trajectory. We've gone record over record over record the last two years, and we're going on a record level again this year. Uh, we are operating our two facilities above optimal capacity. That is part of the challenge for the port. Just to give you some idea, every day 156 loads on a board, this on a barge was 365 day averages. So it's, it's more than that when you look at the days of service. Rail, 33% of our business, 1,228 rail loads in and out of the port every day. And on trucks, 63% of the business, almost 2,400 loads every day. If you look at the last 
21 months, the lighter color shows you what we're doing in volume. We just announced our March 15 results. 229,000 TEUs, that's a 20-foot equivalent unit. That is an all-time record for the Port of Virginia. It gives us 11 months of record year-over-year -year results in the last 21 months. What you can see is the volume is coming, and we haven't built yet the capacity to serve that volume. That is resulting in the congestion you read about all the time. We came in and stabilized our finances, so we're budgeting for the future. We refinanced $142 million of bonds earlier this year. It'll save us about $15 million. We also were upgraded by Fitch to A+, and at our last board meeting, we approved a 60, approximately $67 million bond offering to go out in June, and that will be for container handling equipment and improvements on the ports to help drive the business. Operating revenue, you can see through February, we're tracking at $291 million. We're going to be about $450 million in revenue, the direct revenue for the port at the end of this fiscal year. If you look back, this was the history of the Port of Virginia losing money every year. Through, through February, we have a $4.6 million profit on, on the operating level. That's a $20-plus million turnaround. We're trying to drive home that profit, sustain it, but also invest as much as we can in our facilities. Break-even is really the important part for the Port of Virginia so that we're putting the capital back into play to build the facilities that we need to operate. Mr. Robert, we have to make a comment on this. Yes, sir. Just, uh, uh, John has done a fabulous job of getting control of our administration and our operations, and uh, well, we have some challenges. I want to make it clear that any money made at the port is going to be reinvested in the port. Sustainability is the key, as you point out. So we're not looking to, to pull a money, any money out of the facilities. Quite the opposite. In fact, I believe the Commonwealth needs to invest more in the port. Okay. Long term, because uh, I think one of the things we're suffering from uh, is the lack of investment in the port over the last decade for lots of different reasons. So, want to point out, I mean, there are some people saying, well, you know, we're trying to make a profit. Nobody's trying to make a profit. We're trying to be sustainable and reinvest those proceeds back into the Port of Virginia in addition to additional Commonwealth investment. So, well, thank you, Mr. Secretary. As Aubrey just pointed out, for the last 10 years, we've really let our natural advantages be overtaken. 10 years ago, we beat Savannah in volume. Savannah is now the second busiest port on the east coast of the United States, and they do not have any of the natural advantages that we have here in Virginia. Over the last four years, the state of Florida has invested $850 million in their ports from the state level just to compete with some of the opportunities that are coming due to the Panama Canal. We have not invested at all over this last five-year period. We're starting to invest now, but we're way, way behind the eight ball. On the terminal level, we did get a Tiger Grant last year, which is great news. We applied with the support of the Secretary, and this Tiger Grant was a $31 million application. We got $15 million from the federal <coughs> government. We will put in the $16 million from the port, and this will give us 22 new gates at the north end of MIT. What you see also, and I'll talk more about, it ties directly into the 564 intermodal connector, which will help us get more cargo in and out of the port without traveling on local roads and direct access to the freeway. So we're working with Charlie and VDOT on this project as far as the 564 intermodal connector, and you can see how it ties right here into 564. It has a direct exit to the Navy base, which is a large traffic generator on the north end, and also to the port. So it serves both of us very well. It's an important connection. 
Virginia International Gateway is the facility that the Commonwealth leases from, was leasing from APMT. Last year it was sold to a group of investors. It's now referred to as Big Virginia International Gateway. It has the ability to double its capacity, but we have to work with the new owners to talk about that under the terms and conditions of our lease. But to relieve the congestion that we have right now, we've got an interim project that was approved by our board, agreed to by the owners. We are prepping five acres of paved area so that we can run all of the rail cargo directly onto this new paved area, bringing it out of the stacks, allowing us to do more rail activity on a daily basis. Port of Richmond, opportunity is knocking in the, in the middle of the state where it's got a 4.2 million new mobile harbor crane that has been ordered that will be delivered. We're working on some rail improvements with the RPT. We're offering direct little ladings there, and we're in discussions with the city to try to come up with a better operating arrangement between the port and the city of Richmond. Newport News continues to be a mixed-use facility. Uh, a lot of warehouse, a lot of automobile, so and some heavy lift and some steel. Virginia Inland Port is a regional economic engine. We've had 39 companies locate up at FIP, invested almost $750 million, 8 million plus square feet of buildings, and the employment of over 8,000 people because the port has this facility. Hay fever season, so please excuse me with all the pollen that's coming out. We are an economic force. We have generated $17.5 billion in wages on an annual basis. This is a 2013 William and Mary study. 374,000 people are employed because of the port. It represents just under 10% of the workforce in Virginia. 18 million tons of cargo through the port in 2013, representing $53.2 billion of value. Made in Virginia products, $10.9 billion, 4.5 million tons moved across the port and those are our local companies. So basically, the port helps drive 6.9% of the gross state product. This is the footprint of all the activity that's here in Virginia because of the Port of Virginia. You can see we touch every corner of the Commonwealth. What you look at for transportation projects are guided by some of these developments as we try to increase the flow and velocity of cargo through the Commonwealth, as well as generate new business manufacturing and advanced manufacturing. Excuse me. <coughs> Port-driven economic development achievements. We've announced 34 projects in the last year because of the port. 4.3 million square feet generated. Investments of 2.6 billion. Jobs created 5,000. Just as an idea, every thousand containers that we increase will generate about 300 direct, indirect, and induced jobs for Virginians. Industrial warehouse capacity, this compares us with the other East Coast ports. Yellow is total market, green is direct market. What you can see is the Port of Virginia has a small amount of industrial capacity within 50 miles of the port. But when you go extended, we compete very well with Savannah and with New York. So we have a primary and a secondary market that we can address. We did the foreign trade zone that takes in all of Hampton Roads. This is an inducement to bring other companies, like manufacturing and distribution centers, to anywhere in Hampton Roads and facilitate shovel-ready projects in the Commonwealth.
this slide shows five years' history. What's important about this slide is that the Port of Virginia, over the last five years, grew at 34% paid volume. Paid exports, paid imports. That's the highest of any port on the East Coast. Others grew, but they were moving more empties. We were moving loads, paying cargo. This is the balance, also, that the Port of Virginia has. If you look, 958,000 exports, and then you had 949,000 imports. We don't have an imbalance. That's another advantage that we have as the Port of Virginia. This is the future. If you look at where the cargo forecasts are, in the future, the population, 670% of the population in the United States is going to be within a one-day drive of this port. That's consumers for import products to export uh, manufactured products. It is a huge opportunity if we seize the day in Virginia. Here's the Norfolk Southern Gateway, or Heartland Quarter, rather, but they use the right term. We don't want to offend them. Uh, it's a great product. This is really moving cargo. It cut a day off of the transit, really took 260 miles, I think it was, out of the, the, the channel that they had to take. We can get the next day or two days out cargo in and out of the Midwest. We can be the port for the Midwest by rail. CSX is still challenged with the Virginia Avenue Tunnel, but once they get through that, this will be another competitive advantage for the Port of Virginia. These two corridors by rail, you can see our volume, which is 34%. It's the highest of any port on the east coast of the United States, which means our market reaches further into the heartland. At 34%, we can see that go to 40% or more because we have that direct service. Now, Atlanta will always come out of Savannah. That's a natural advantage. New York will have its local market, but the secondary market, it's our opportunity. To go to market sizing and port positioning, these graphs show you population. So we have a direct market, a captive market of about 14.2 million people. But we have a secondary market of over 40 million people. That puts us on par with the overall direct and indirect markets of New York and Savannah. There's no reason why the Port of Virginia can't continue to grow that secondary market with the efficient rail connections that we're putting together with CSX and already have with NS. <coughs> Here's the natural advantages. Port depth. We're 18 miles from the open channels. We're 50 foot today. All the others, Miami's trying to get to 50 foot by uh, the end of this month or next month. Baltimore has 50 feet by one berth, but that's it. There's a natural disadvantage that they have a 12-hour transit to get up and out of Baltimore. Also, because of the echo rules, you've got to burn low sulfur diesel, so it's gotten more expensive to take ships up to Baltimore port. This channel is so important, but we haven't gotten the federal funding yet. We need the federal funding. They've given us the study amount. You know, we have study money from the state and the feds, but we need to get this dredging started. This is what's going to create the soil that will be the future Craney Island so that when we go to build in the future, that landmass is coming out of this dredging area. It is the most cost-effective place on the East Coast to dredge. On a per cubic meter basis, cubic yard, we have a place to deposit it right here in the port. It's all clean sand. When we go to these channels, it will allow us to widen, deepen, and be safer. 
and it also will support our Navy, which also has a huge need for direct access. What happens right now, because of some of the width, we have to wait to bypass. So you have to have a cop almost doing the directing of traffic. So then you have to give away to a Navy vessel. That means you have to hold the commercial vessels out at sea. This is huge, and we need to drive this sooner. Just a comment on that back this afternoon, Deputy uh, Secretary Donnelly and I will be briefing our congressional delegation on uh, this is one of the top things. And I want to point out it's just not deepening, and John mentioned it's also widening. We have the uh, growing presence of the port, and we have the growing presence of uh, special ops operations that work out of uh, Fort Story. In that area, there is a conflict. We're trying to put everything through a bottleneck. You know, we've had a great meeting with, you know, with the, the Navy, uh, and we've got protocol worked out. But simply, with these ships getting larger, we're going to run out of room. And so getting this channel deepened and wide is key to both of those driving forces of our economy, the port and our military mission. Yes. Uh, obviously, the military mission is going to take precedent because of national security, and that will make us less competitive if we have we can't get this. So very important. One of the common transportation board to understand. I mean, all the things uh, that uh, it's not just on highways. We've got a highway out in the water there. That's congested. We have got to get that deep and widen. A lot of us uh, will be on top priority from us working with congressional delegation uh, going forward. So it's, uh, it's uh, something that's no longer been talked about. It's now a reality. We've got to deal with it. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. The, the other point to the discussions is this anchorage, having safe anchorage facilities where ships can come in and lay up until there's access to a berth or until there's a clean pathway because of the Navy vessels. That's something we were working on very carefully and closely because of the military mission and needing to have safe anchorage uh, out in the harbor. The future for Virginia, if we make the right decisions now, is going to be extremely bright. <laughs> what we have to do, though, is continue to incrementally move forward on our investments to be competitive because the cost of congestion is just wearing down our reputation and it's also wearing down the facilities that we have because they're running 7 by 24 nonstop above optimal utilization, which means no time for preventative maintenance, planned maintenance. <coughs> There's no resiliency in the, in the uh, toolkit right now. We're running at full throttle. So if you look at this picture in the future, what you have is the, the larger presentation in the middle is what we call big. It is only half developed today. And if we developed it, we would add another 850 feet of berth. We'd add four more cranes. We'd add two more tracks. We'd go to a totally automated rail conveyance rather than manual. And we'd add 14 more stacks. We have 15 stacks today. Add more lanes and more gates. And this would take this facility to be able to do a million two, where today it's about 650,000 optimal. And we're running at 710 now. So this is an important investment we're working on with the owners. NIT, I didn't touch on, but we're working on a modernization plan for NIT where we can take its optimal capacity up to a million two, which would increase doubling the on-dock rail, bringing in new container handling equipments that are uh, equipment such as RTGs or RMGs, rail-mounted gantries, rubber tire gantries. If I use acronyms, I apologize. Just question me when you... Uh, and those help us 
move cargo more efficiently. Right now we use a, a, what's called a strad trader operation, which means as you build the rows, if it's a bottom box, you've got multiple boxes you have to move. That's inefficient. You can cut those wasted motions out when you put your stacks together with RMGs or RTGs. So we're looking at those. Then here is the long-term future for Virginia. We can build this facility in phases, but totally build out. Craney Island can give you another 5 million PEU capacity. It would be able to be built in phases, so we don't invest too soon. And it overall will be 220 acres. It will tie into all of the projects that you look at as the CTB, because this does have direct rail access. There's going to be road access, uh, which would be part of the Patriots Crossing or the, you know, the, that whole development. And that's how you'll get cargo in and out of this facility for the long haul. When you look at Craney Island from the air, you all say, well, there's a big landmass. That landmass that you see is not where the terminal will be. The terminal will be an, an eastward expansion. We have the cells there. We have to build that up because a lot of the fill material that's in the old uh, Craney Island is soupy. It was done at different times. It has different levels of quality. We could never build in there because of the environmental impacts. So long term, the opportunities are here for Virginia to take hold. A couple of the things that we've tried to do in the last year is we've driven this by a value-based principled leadership approach. We've completed a, com a reorganization of the three elements that make up the Port of Virginia. So we have the Virginia Port Authority, we have Virginia International Terminals, and we have HRCP2, which is a chassis-owning company. It's one of the better business models on the East Coast. Some ports are just landlord ports. Some ports are operating ports. We are right in the middle as an operating port. Let's us control our destiny. The new NIT rail conveyance has helped us increase cargo velocity. We're averaging about 900 to 1,000 rail moves a day across that facility, and we can take it further. We reopened an idle facility, PMT's 267 acres that was just sitting there idle. Not in great condition, but we can take ships up to 43 foot deep, so they're not the super post Panamax, but there's a lot of services that could call there. We're dredging it out to stay at 43 feet, we're improving the rail, uh, not a, uh, for the ship to short range, we're improving the rails on the dock. We've added a lot of container handling equipment. This is kind of an old school approach, but if we had not had this outlet, which is going to do over 100,000 TEUs this year, we would have crippled the facilities and we never would have had the ability to grow the port. Strategic, important, and more to do there. The automated gate that we put in at NIT is helping to improve our service. We put in a whole new terminal operating system last summer, so we're starting to harvest the benefits of that IT upgrade. The Tiger Grant we already talked about. Performance management and key performance indicators are part of the daily plan. We completed at the Secretary's direction a facilities use and optimization plan and a strategic growth plan. We delivered those last summer. So we know where we need to spend the money to grow the port and be competitive. And we have been profitable since the end of showing fiscal responsibility. There have been some challenges. You know, if you've read the ability to handle the volume of congestion, our capacity is, we're operating above capacity, our infrastructure is a little worn out, the equipment's aging, and we've got to continue to develop our workforce. The opportunities are great. We want to continue to force forward the 55 foot. The, the big expansion, the North Gate at NIT, the modernization of NIT, the interface with Port of Richmond, and driving economic development. Ladies and gentlemen, we're trying to be stewards of tomorrow and serve you in the Commonwealth. That would end the presentation, sir.
Thank you, Mr. Ron Hart. Uh, open it up for the questions or uh, Mr. Robert. I wanted, wanted to point out uh, here, the reason I wanted this presentation to you, this board, uh, is our relationship not only with the court and what it's doing, uh, but another organization here we talked about last week, HR TAC, will be looking at this issue and we'll be at the state partner working with them of course, the next uh, big decision they will have to make is, is what river crossing, uh, crossing and how that's invested. So I want you to understand, as we get requests for that, how that impacts the port uh, going forward. Right now, uh, HR TAC is looking at uh, the third crossing, expansion of the Elizabeth River, uh, the uh, high-rise bridge, others, the HRBT is a part of that discussion. So, uh, we'll be asked uh, to uh, be involved in that as, as they go through their deliberations. Uh, because John's working with, and he's be the first today, at the uh, on terminal the congestion, there's some things we do. I can mention we've got an investment facility. That is the real answer. Uh, but in the short term, working through what we can. Uh, but we are responsible working with the localities with all the other congestion in the area. You mentioned the Port of Richmond. That could be a big development that we can get some of these trucks coming to Richmond. On barges coming this way, that'll help. So it's another part of this. So we really wanted you to understand how what our role is and importance mm -hmm. for uh, with this economic development, how that's going to impact regional and statewide transportation decisions. Okay. So with that, we'll open it up to Sweden. And this is not a question for you, I'm sorry, but you mentioned HR TAC numerous times. Yes. And I'd like to see if we could get a uh, 400-page report, but it'd be nice to get a report about where they stand organizationally and administratively, because the only thing I have is anecdotal stuff is seeing the paper or somebody else has. I'd love to see it. I know they struggled in the beginning, maybe for the right reasons, I don't know. I'd like to know that. Yeah, I think that's why I think we have some NGO members, Ms. Mitchell and Mr. Kilpatrick, sir. And so we'll make a request. In fact, maybe we should have them make a presentation to us. I think it is starting to come around, Jill. And they have not hired an executive director yet. And I suppose that we probably ought to make sure. That happens. I think that'll be a next big step for them. I know they're, they're storing that and pick the bank account. But I agree because it's extremely important to the region uh, and we'll be working with them. So I'll be happy to make that request. Thank so, you. Ms. Johnson uh, goes to most of the meetings. Um, so we'll make sure uh, we get a, a briefing to, to the CTB on where they stand. They have a meeting this Thursday. So yeah. maybe after that, uh, uh, we can bring you up to see you on that. And by the way, John, uh, is, uh, the court is an official member of that. Uh, I think I am also provide invitation. Yes, Mr. Whitworth. Uh, two questions, John. First, uh, the, I understand the widening. Uh, are there ships currently now that require 55 feet that cannot go anywhere on the East Coast? There are ships that require more than 50 feet, but they're holding off on the East Coast right now until there's a second port. And we think that as you raise the bridge in New York, you're going to see them come and they're going to look for a two-port set because they don't want to just do a single port. And that bridge raising is supposed to be done next year. And that's a billion-and-a-half-dollar uh, project on raising the Bayonne Bridge so they can bring in the larger ships. 
and then they'll have plus 50 feet alongside for their bird. Just like point two, that we have some shifts, really, these coal colliers that yeah. that are hitting the bottom now. Yeah, they lose about 20% of their useful capacity because they can't load out completely, and the coal, the, the coal ships would be using it immediately. But the container vessels would be a little mm -hmm. further out. The other thing is we aren't tide restricted. You want to have safe distance under the hull, under the keel. So having a couple foot of extra space is just allowing you to move safely. We have had some ships that have touched touched soil, touched uh, grounded, not grounded, but brushed. Uh, because our, our channels need to be maintained and deep. My, my second question, <coughs> and the next background, was somewhat impressed uh, with the reversal of your operating numbers. Uh, you go from 15 and 16 million dollar losses in two months to a plus four million dollar. Uh, that just didn't happen. There's got to be some significant change that took place in the two months of 2015. What, what was that? And what is your projection for 2015 year end? Okay, so to, to clarify, our fiscal year obviously is July 1. Okay. So this, this, the $16 million we lost going through June 30 of last year is compared to $4.6 million now going through February. So you've got eight months okay. of actual results. But in February of last year, we were trending towards losing 24 to $25 million. So the first thing that we were instructed to do was try to pull every lever we could which is the right thing from a business point of view, to stop the bleeding. And that was where we focused in the, in the spring of last year is to stop the bleeding, create a budget that was at least break even. And that was our goal for this year, was just to break even. So we're a little bit ahead of where we, we thought we'd be. Part of that's volume driven. Volume's at 10% up. So that's one area. Second thing, we got better productivity. So we shaved about 3% where we were working overtime before we were able to reduce our overtime by 3%, which is a big cost saver because we were moving that volume more effectively through the normal hours of 8 to 5. So we got a little more productive in the daytime. Well, we're talking a little bit uh, because it's really a big part of the leadership. I mean, the, the, the came in, the leadership, uh, there was no real leadership, quite frankly, uh, and uh, Sean was in kind of all of the operations I think it's a lot to do, but there's a cohesive leadership uh, now uh, where every branch in there knows what the other's doing. So, the key. so a lot of them had to do, quite frankly, with the executive leadership. Well, that's a tremendous return and, and to be commended. Well, thank you, sir. The team, the team really came together. I got to give it to our team. They were really performing well. Ms. Uh, that that's very impressive turnaround, as Dixon indicated, and I appreciate this point in time update. My question is for the future. What ports do you consider the real challenge for the Port of Virginia looking forward, and what are those states doing that we have to play catch up on? Is there anybody taking quantum leaps to, to forge ahead in that battle of the the six, seven ports, I think, that you have on the grass. Uh, over the last 10 years, there's been a very focused effort out of Georgia, and they came at a plan. We've already created a Virginia model, which we've shared with the board, 
and with VEDP uh, and others so we can try to put a Virginia model to build off of that. So Georgia was doing a lot of funding to improve their port, over $100 plus million dollars a year every year going into building out, and they have just one facility. They have a real disadvantage, though, because they got a long river, and they've got $300 plus million dollars that has to be spent to dredge, and it's going to silt right back up. They don't even talk about the 22 miles that they got to cut at the open ocean to get a channel out to the shipping lanes. We don't need to do that. We get offshore, right out of, out of, out of shore. We're already to go to the sea lanes without any further spending. Florida is $850 million in four years. And Florida really is a captive market for the peninsula, maybe into the Caribbean and a little bit of north of uh, Latin America. But they're not going to be supplying the heartland of the United States. So they're, they're really not what I would consider a competitor. Charleston and Savannah compete as a, as a block because they really are competing against one another. Baltimore, New York to the north. New York's going to hold the domestic market, but I think we can take the inland market away from them with our rail partners because we can be more efficient and bring the larger ships in. Um, our forward plan for 10 years is over $2 billion will be required just to stay even. So that's the kind of future capital requirement. I'm going to have two issues for this uh, A lot of, uh, I'm looking at it's about $43 million, somewhere about $40 million dollars a year. Uh, it's supposed to be used for economic development and capital estimate for The last eight or nine years, it's basically used to subsidize the So, I know we that. But, and what it, what it was right or wrong, this failed uh, privatization effort, really set the comment about wealth back significantly at the court level. So that's one of the reasons we're saying we've got to have more investment support while it's doing its part. If this is going to require, we look at our competitors, we didn't mention Savannah, they put hundreds of millions of dollars in the trying to track. The Commonwealth, if we're going to be in this business, needs to put investment support. And that'll be our emphasis that we'll be looking at the Trump administration, looking at how we can help uh, the port uh, with that, because we're playing catch up. Uh, much like we are in transportation with uh, roads, we haven't done the same in the port and we're playing catch up and we've got to get it because the, the opportunity has gone very there and we've got to find a port in the world of fun. And if, a follow on if I may, the, the Panama Canal is just a good outlet, but we already have the larger ships getting to us through the Suez Canal. And it's only about, you know, 700 miles difference from here to uh, Hong Kong, whether you go through the Suez or the Panama Canal. So that'll just give us a second way to get here. But what's really in play is the dislocation of shipping, logistics, and transportation from the West Coast to the East Coast. Seven million containers come into the West Coast ports. As the production comes, comes around Southeast Asia and starts to come back towards India, the, the East Coast gets much more attractive. When you've had ports that have shut down because of labor uh, strike on the West Coast twice in the last 10 years, the, the, the people are looking and they're saying, we're not going to do this again. We're going to diversify our supply chain and have it coming west and east. These folks are coming in here looking for shovel-ready sites today. We don't have enough shovel-ready sites from an economic development point of view. <coughs> I'll give you an example. Ace Hardware used to do all of their shipping out of the West Coast. Today, Ace Hardware has a facility in Virginia and a facility in the Pacific Northwest, and they supply the entire country the products. It gives them an outlet if something's going wrong. Environmentally or workforce-wise, they have an outlet. You're seeing more and more companies that are saying, we're going to put 10, 20, 30 percent 
of our business to the East Coast. So that's the business that's dislocating that we want to compete with the other East Coast ports. But a 10% move is 700,000 containers. We're not ready to handle 700,000 containers. So the opportunity is there if we can just prepare the, prepare the field. It's called. And, and answer a good part of the question. How much of the increase of the last three quarters that you've seen in freight do you think is a result of labor strike out there? And how much do you think will stick okay. once that's cleaned up? Okay, that's a good question. The, a couple of the major distributors have already moved uh, facilities and people here. So to me, that's an indication that the cargo is coming and going to stay. As long as we don't frustrate it, the cargo is going to go where it's treated well and where it can flow without being impeded. So I think we're going to maintain a lot of it. And we're not going to be at 16% growth, but our forecast, our conservative estimates were 4 to 5% growth going out over the next 10 years. It's going to be higher than that. It's going to be high single digits to maybe 10%. That's what we're seeing. Smaller. Can you speak to uh, the 460 corridor and how that fits into your long-term strategic initiatives? Well, the, uh, going out another route creates opportunities because there's some developable land out there and there are some large sites that could be developed and it gives another pathway to get out of the port right now. We're going up predominantly up 64, which thankfully is being expanded, but we're still going to have some choke points at the tunnels. Um, I think the other one we have to look at is the interstate uh, recognition going down to North Carolina, the Raleigh Corridor, which will be another access point. Um, so we, that would be good. Something, the 460 to 50, we need something. But I think the, the original plan was a little bit failed. Comment on that. I mean, obviously, it's, getting, it's both 460 and 58, that quarter getting them out. John mentioned uh, the 17 Dominion uh, Boulevard. We are uh, working with uh, North Carolina, FJK, that's uh, being designated as a future interstate. Mm -hmm. uh, we're ready in Virginia, but North Carolina will need to find the money to make 17 a limited access interstate road through there. 64 take us to Rome. We have that laser outlet for the trucks uh, in that. Uh, but really, um, that's the importance, and I think Jim Butterbeck's going to show a little bit of some problems here at Hampton Road after this, but that's the importance of us uh, uh, getting uh, the ability, working with the HR tech and these trucks out of here. It's going to grow and grow. The point is, it's not just the vehicular traffic, it's truck traffic that is going to continue to grow. North Carolina, I think, has decided that their farmers uh, in Northeast North Carolina are better off shipping to the Port of Virginia than through Wilson. Because uh, that's, I mean, we're going to see a lot more activity going both ways. Well, those two corridors that both avoid the choke points that are water crossing, which I would think would be a big one <coughs> in terms of logistically moving uh, the truck towards the, the freight. That, that's correct. I mean, all right, there's no doubt if we can get trucks other than up 64. Uh, and of course, now we got 17 potentially going south, but getting out west uh, through. The other two things we have to do is continue to drive the intermodal connectivity. If you look at what happened up at Front Royal, yeah. we're running trains five days a week. We could double that facility and add more train capacity there. Then those don't have those trucks don't travel here to get to the northwestern part of the state. They're going up there by rail, and then they're a short haul around it. 
same reason we're focusing on Richmond is that we want to use the barge so we get them off the roads, get it up there, and then we do more of a local dray. We also do rail through Greensboro. So we're running another rail corridor that way so that we can get the rail cargo out into North Carolina and Greensboro. And I know that there's additional intermodal capacity that's being built up in West Virginia. So, you know, if we can do that, that's the stuff that will help us drive our numbers up on rail and barge. We don't have the roadways to handle the volume increases coming. And the thing on Richmond, I'll give this trail on is if in fact we are successful in a long term lease there and Josh can invest in that before, then we're going to need to put additional, maybe top 95, the interchange is going to the Port of Richmond because we're returning a whole lot more traffic going there. So, again, that's how this ties in, not just here, but across the state. Mr. Chairman? Uh, I thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, I, I want to do, uh, echo the Chairman's comments, having been on the board when we were doing the search for executive director and um, I think that that was an incredibly important decision that we made. Uh, as soon as we made the decision not to privatize the port, um, and you're right, that did disrupt operations uh, substantially. Um, and uh, I think John's doing a great job and I'm, I'm really, I'm really, really proud of him. Um, there are a couple of things that I would, I would want to get you to comment on. It seems to me the future of the port is is going to be largely tied to our rail capacity. Our rail capacity has increased a lot. Um, and, and as Jennifer knows, that's re, you know that's a way to get the container to the port without uh, uh, running on down 64. And um, we've got two class one railroads that compete for business, which is very uh, important. Um, and, and I think that I would encourage John to do whatever he could to make sure that those that, that competition continues. Um, and, um, you, you know, if, if you look at the example, Front Royal has expanded. It took a long time. Uh, it's a long-term investment, and we're glad we have it now. I don't know what we do without it. <laughs> um, and we need to be looking at other places. Richmond's one, Roanoke's one, um, that we can help feed in and... Uh, um, uh, volume. The other thing that's been a hamstring, a hamstring uh, for the port that needs to get resolved is the lease agreement on uh, the International Gateway Terminal. And I know we're working on that, and if we can't, we need to be ready to build Craniana. If we can't reach a deal on International Gateway Terminal, we need to be ready to go with Craniana because we're going to need the capacity. And um, the, the last thing I'll say about 460. One of the reasons, and, and John, you correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the advantages that Savannah's had over us over the past um, 20 years is they've had a warehousing strategy. They've got Atlanta right there, and they are inland and have developed inland uh, warehousing capability and intermodal capability <coughs> to service that Savannah port. We are kind of not really have that capability under existing road networks on the Norfolk sort of peninsula. Inland at 460, where we're looking at doing this project, we do. And um, sometimes people say, well, why would we do this 460 road? It doesn't really connect with Petersburg. Well, there are a lot of economic development reasons to do that road. And so I think that's something that we, that we need to keep in mind. The one question I got for John is, when we're looking at the third crossing, and we're trying to weigh between Patriots Crossing, and I won't put you on the spot, but it will a little bit, versus <laughs> another crossing to, to the peninsula. Um, 
with Craney Island, does, does the, the, my understanding of the Patriots crossing, it's not going to service Craney Island per se. It's going to, it's going to service Norfolk International Terminal to have an on-ramp, but will Craney Island? There'll, there'll be a tie if you look at the north end here. That you can see it's going to run just beyond Craney Island. So the road would come across the back of the terminal and tie into that cross. So there will, there will be an exit. Yeah. Okay. So it will tie in. And, and the real question is defining what the third crossing is. Uh, in other words, is it just going over there to tying into the cross that's coming to the sea? Yeah, that's not another tunnel, is it? Uh, yeah. I mean, in other words, so I know that's really what I think that we, along with HR Packing, come in. This environmental process we're going through will, will help in that. And, Mr. Rodriguez, I'll make another point about 462. I think that's why it's important. We don't know what we're going to do there yet. Mm -hmm. We're still looking to do that. Why well, it is important to get to a permit, uh, because in addition to what it is, that will tell us where we can build, depending on that permit. So whether or not we we uh, uh, actually build the road, or we go through, you know, we've been through all that based on the permitting, getting the permit is important. Because at least we know a quarter that is developable because of the environmental impacts out there. So anyway, just after your comments on that, I think that's exactly right. And did you want me to come in on Savannah? No, not for each year. Well, one of the things that Savannah did 10 years ago is they let the port go out and buy 2,000 acres just right. outside their facility and develop pads and start to put warehouses in. Then they basically gave them to Home Depots and others to operate. So then they cluster right there. The same way Charleston has worked on advanced manufacturing, Boeing and automotive, and now they're getting the industrial base there because they've really focused all their investments on advanced manufacturing to service the port of Charleston. We need to be a little more aggressive in the way we focus our efforts. We have Norfolk Southern has a site there, Alabama County. But let me throw another thing, and that's why the government and the support this pipeline, getting utilities to those locations. It's just important. 17 is an opportunity for because there are utilities there now. So, you know, it's important that we have, you know, have whether it's uh, uh, electricity or water or other types of fuel. I mean, getting them there to the quarter is important too. So, develop, and they typically follow where a road is or where a distribution is, and that's where they come. So, that's why, you know, don't worry about putting utilities out on 17 South until we get many boulevard. No, yeah, that's opened it up. And Mr. Chairman, you're exactly right because we think of those jobs as warehousing and distribution jobs, and they can be, and those are important too. But you also have manufacturing jobs that want to locate nearby their export and import facility. And so you're you're right on the target there. Any other questions for Mr. Reinhardt? John, thank Mr. you very much. I appreciate it very Thanks much. I think one time, uh, sometime over the next couple of years, we'll, as we get a little further, we'll maybe arrange a tour of the facility that I think come online. We'd be happy to do that. Thank, thank you, you all. Uh, did we have Mr. Urbach want to take a few minutes? Jim, to take a few minutes. Paul would be helpful now. You want to see where the port's going. Jim can sort of tell you what's going on in the district with uh, with uh, uh, transportation in terms of how it affects in. And, 
you all know the sort of acquisition administrator. So you have welcome this morning. Secretary, thank you. I just want to take a, a couple minutes and just talk about the district. Uh, first, I want to echo what the Secretary said. Welcome to Hampton Roads. We're glad you're here. The staff knows you're here, so we're trying to make everything good. We've got a tour working with ERC and SKW for you this afternoon. I think you're really going to enjoy that. That's a, that's one of the mega projects in Virginia, and they're burning, I think, in the summer, probably almost a million dollars a day in construction. So we'll take you through all the phases of that, and we're going to adjust the uh, with the weather, and we've got all kinds of accommodations to take care of you there. So. Um, that'll be good. I'm also glad the Department of Aviation helped the Secretary get down here uh, yesterday, so I'm on Secretary Watch with uh, having him down here. We always, uh, between him, the Deputy Secretary, and the Commissioner, I always make sure they get through the through the tunnels okay. We do have about 800 and 830 full-time employees. We've got another couple hundred folks that help us operate the system. Um, I've been here two years. I ran the, the, the Culpeper District for five years before I came. Um, so I do know a little about VDOT. Just all the districts are great. All the districts are unique. Uh, probably the operational aspect of the 24-7 operation and the nighttime construction on the interstate is what really, really kind of makes this uh, different than some of the other things. And uh, I spent a career in the military, so I did a lot of uh, military PowerPoints and presentations. And, and I, I decided maybe just to give an overview of the district, I would do a video instead of dragging you through a military kind of presentation. So um, we're going we're gonna to probably roll that here in a second. And just wanted to kind of just stress that we probably have about 100, 100 people working every night in operations, running the ferries, opening bridges, and through the tunnels and, and operations. We probably have about, in the height of summer, about 70 70 construction work zones that we set up on the interstates and made the primary roads. Right now, we have just under $500 million in contracts that this board has awarded. Those are out on the street right now. With HR TAC in the district program, we will have another $500 million that we'll bring to this board in the next three years for you, you all to award. So that's just a real quick overview. And uh, let me get the video going. Paula's help because I keep telling her to cut it down. I think we've got it for a couple of minutes. She assures me this is going to go very fast. So no problem. The Virginia Department of Transportation, committed to keeping Virginians moving. From the Atlantic coast to the Blue Ridge Mountains, from the bustling cities to the rural farmlands, VDOT is committed to providing safe, dependable, and efficient roadways. As one of nine VDOT districts, the Hampton Roads District encompasses the most unique region in the Commonwealth. Surrounded by famous waterways like the Chesapeake Bay, the James River, and the Elizabeth River, the district plans, delivers, operates, maintains, and supports a complex network of bridges, tunnels, and interstates. The district administrator supervises the dedicated leadership team to deliver a reliable transportation infrastructure to meet the needs of the citizens of Hampton Roads. 
From the Atlantic Oceanfront in Virginia Beach, reaching west to Emporia, the city of Williamsburg, and New Kent, and north to the Virginia Eastern Shore, all the way south to the North Carolina state line, the district operates and maintains thousands of lane miles throughout nine counties and 11 cities. Hampton Roads is home to more than 1.6 million people, including a military population of more than 100,000 active duty service members. Combined with the region's large tourism industry, more than half a million trips are taken across a bridge or tunnel in the VDOT Hampton Roads district every day. And with the region's highly complex transportation system, the district delivers around the clock with commitment and dedication. The district offers a unique network of interstates, primary, and secondary roads. VDOT also maintains six movable bridges, a system of tunnels, and many water crossings. Primary bridges include the Berkeley, the High Rise, the James River Bridge, and the Coleman Bridge. VDOT bridge tenders work to make sure both vehicle traffic and ship traffic move across the bridges and waterways safely. Significant tunnels in the region include the Hampton Roads Bridge Tunnel and the Monitor Merrimack Memorial Bridge Tunnel. Connecting the peninsula to the south side, they provide vital routes that businesses, residents, and tourists depend on. VDOT's private sector partner, Elizabeth River Crossings, operates and maintains the downtown and midtown tunnels. Collectively called the Elizabeth River Tunnels, they link Norfolk and Portsmouth, providing critical crossings underneath the waterway. In addition, four ferries make up the free Jamestown Scotland Ferry Fleet that crosses the James River, giving drivers another fun, scenic, and useful water crossing. The district office in Suffolk serves as the vital hub of leadership, communications, operations, planning, and support. Direct operations are managed by satellite facilities, where the outlying regions are served by the Accomac Residency, the Franklin Residency, and the Williamsburg Residency, all working together to monitor, maintain, repair, plan, and build the region's infrastructure. Traffic never stops, and neither does VDOT operations. Workers monitor roadways, bridges, and tunnels 24 hours a day, 365 days a year from the Transportation Operations Center. The TOC relies heavily on technology for congestion and incident management, as well as emergency response. Within seconds, VDOT responds to an incident, notifying necessary authorities and communicating to the public via VDOT 511, Virginia's non-stop resource for traffic and travel information. Simultaneously, electronic message signs and highway advisory radio give drivers real-time traffic information. VDOT is committed to early detection and rapid response to keep traffic moving. An integral part of VDOT's response is the Safety Service Patrol. Patrolling 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, the SSP are VDOT's eyes on the road. During an incident, the SSP provides traffic control to minimize disruption and allow first responders to do their jobs safely. Preparing for snow, hurricanes, storms, and other weather events is another function of VDOT operations. As a severe storm approaches, VDOT establishes a command center to ensure all personnel, materials, and equipment are ready. During the storm, communications, response, and management are maintained around the park. 
whether an incident on the highway or storm affecting traffic flow. VDOT's primary goal is to keep motorists safe and moving. That's why nearly half of the district's workforce is dedicated to maintenance activities. The maintenance personnel are continually inspecting and evaluating all roadways. Maintenance operations manages equipment, materials, and repairs and provides critical data toward planning construction. With one of the largest construction programs in the state, the district has a robust infrastructure plan that integrates rehabilitation and new construction. Whether it's a bridge replacement, concrete rehabilitation, or building new roads and water crossings, construction operations are planned and managed carefully in conjunction with local cities and counties. The district's planning and preliminary engineering divisions help map and design each project to meet strict environmental and technical standards. Project managers also make sure to get citizen input before construction starts through public hearings and community outreach. When work is underway, the Hampton Roads District leadership meets weekly to evaluate and coordinate work zone activity. City by city, road by road, lane by lane, they manage construction and lane closures. Their priority is always to keep roads open with as few disruptions as possible. Managing operations, maintenance, repair, and construction requires the VDOT Hampton Roads District to work closely with many partners. The military is a key stakeholder in the region because Hampton Roads is home to 26 Department of Defense installations, including the largest naval base in the world. VDOT works with the military to ensure they can move personnel and equipment to accomplish their operational mission. VDOT also partners closely with the Port of Virginia and Coast Guard Sector Hampton Roads to make sure that goods and services move through waterways efficiently and securely. The district engages community partners through close collaboration and comprehensive communication. Key stakeholders and local and state economies depend on VDOT to provide a viable infrastructure that meets the needs of citizens the region, and the Commonwealth of Virginia. Supporting all of VDOT's operations, maintenance, and construction are the dedicated employees in the district. More than 800 professionals, including highly skilled engineers, managers, and technicians, work closely with the VDOT Central Office to provide citizens and businesses with roadways they can count on. District leadership values the dedication, skill, and expertise of all the staff at VTOP and is committed to ongoing training, career advancements, and providing a positive, diverse work environment. VDOT personnel embrace the agency's goals and deliver infrastructure at every level. Each day, these dedicated individuals balance priorities and challenges to improve the quality of life through safe and reliable transportation. And they do it with pride. Because Hampton Roads depends on VDOT. VDOT. We keep Virginia moving. Okay, Mr. Rebecca, just the time schedule. The Virginia Department of Transportation. No, I think it was uh, very informative. I do want to mention the performance of VDOT, particularly in the last two uh, years that I've been here, 
in regard to uh, the storms and the winter uh, snow that are exemplary. Uh, appreciate all the hard work that everyone uh, does in the district and of course across the Commonwealth. Uh, Mr. Kilpatrick uh, deserves credit for, uh, for that, so just want to point that out in there. So. Any questions of Mr. Arterback? Thank you. Um, we hear a lot about rising sea levels and depletion of groundwater and, and the problems it creates. Can you have some sort of update on what you're doing at some point while we're here to address those issues? A absolutely. There is a committee down here with the, in the region, and we're part of that. Several several committees. I think if the secretary wants, we could probably give an update um, or arrange for one that could be given to the committee. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Thanks. Uh, I just wanted to comment on the great work that the Hampton Roads District does. And again, what's sort of unique here is the amount of 24-hour, uh, uh, seven-day-a-week operations that's somewhat unique to Hampton Roads with the movable bridges and our tunnel operations. We do night work throughout Virginia, and uh, including Northern Virginia. But again, this is uh, it's such a large uh, component of what we do here. Uh, there's somebody working at VDOT uh, every hour of every day in the uh, Hampton Roads. So again, thank you to uh, Jim and his team. Thank you. Um, as I mentioned uh, earlier, uh, Mr. Don, you and I have to leave around noon. We've got to go to uh, D.C. for congressional briefing while you guys are in the tunnels uh, having it this afternoon. Uh, yeah. Can I go with you? <laughs> <laughs> you can go and play with me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have to go on fun. Uh, uh, so uh, we can change the schedule up a little bit. I mentioned earlier, hopefully we'll get through the work session. I think we have a hard break at noon today uh, because of the, the tour. And uh, so I'm going to, uh, first of all, get, let uh, Mr. Donahue go into the legislative update. Uh, but then we'll go right into House Bill 2. And Mr. Lawson, if we don't quite get through the six-year plan, we can do that in the morning uh, in that. Uh, I'm not trying to suggest it's not important, but because of the time constraints. Uh, Mr. Donahue, I asked him to give us a brief legislative update. You've had this before, but we, of course, in veto session, don't think a lot of anything in transportation is trying to go through it. But I do want to point out that Mr. Utterback is going through one of the key things that we try to do is to defeat this legislation as governance. And one of them is getting the CTV going to the policy level and our agencies, the Dominic VDOT and DRPT, back to execution agencies, the things, their core competencies. So I think it's following on what uh, Mr. Oderbach presented. I think you'll see that theme going through some of this uh, legislation, too. Mr. Donahue, I'll turn it over to you. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Good morning, members of the board. I'm here to talk about three pieces of legislation this morning. Two of them are the governor's. Uh, bills that we talked about previously in the January CTV meeting, but now those bills have been through the assembly and have been signed by the governor. I want to update the board. At the last meeting, there were a lot of questions about specifically how do these new programs work and what else has changed. So we're going to walk you through that. And then the last bill you see here is the uh, only transportation bill where amendments were submitted by the governor for the veto session tomorrow with the General Assembly. And I wanted to update the board on that. So as you all know, uh, House Bill 1887 was the governor's omnibus transportation package. 
uh, passed by very wide margins of both the House and the Senate and was signed about two weeks ago by the governor, so without amendment. There are several things that the bill does, and I want to walk through those and really take the time to make sure the board understands each of these pieces. And then there's some other things that were added to the bill throughout the legislative process that I'm not sure the board has been briefed on at all at this point. So the major component of House Bill 1887 was the provision of the construction formula that exists today. And as you know, there's, we've had two formulas for a period of time, the CTV off the top formula, and then we've had the kind of more traditional primary, secondary, and urban formula. This bill allows the CTV formula to sunset in 2020 and repeals the primary, secondary, and urban formula, putting in place the new formula we previously talked about, which provides, again, 45% for state of good repair purposes, 27.5% for high-priority projects, and 27.5% to the construction district grant program. The other thing that we did in this bill was we reduced the number of takedowns that happened before funds run through the formula. So in the past, there were a number of things that would have happened before you ever got to either the CTB formula or the 40-30-30, the primary, secondary, and urban formula. Under this new program, there's debt service, crossover, and then a discrete number of uh, specialized federal and state programs. And that's things like the congestion mitigation, air quality program, which has very, very specific rules, and then the state revenue sharing program. Mr. Massey, yeah, question on, on the phase-in, go back one. The effective date is, is uh, uh, 2021. That's that's, a that's in the legislation, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Chairman, yes. So, so is that? Are, is that like a hard date? All of a sudden, we turn off one spigot, turn on the other in 2021? Are we phasing that in? And do we have authority? I'm trying to figure out where we. So, Mr. Fraylin, moving to the next slide here, there is phase in right. written into the legislation to allow us to adjust to this new formula over time. And what, but at what is it, does it give us uh, certain percentages or is it just... Yeah, and so I'm going to walk through that right now, Mr. Right, right. Let's do that. So, as you recall, the, the six-year program that was adopted by the board last June allocated all the funds that were available between FY15 and FY20, with the exception of about $416 million that was subject to House Bill 2. And so what the bill provides is in between FY16 and FY20 that that House Bill 2 holding account and really any excess funds that were available will be sent immediately through either the high priority program or the construction district grant program. So what it does is because we already had bridge and pavement projects programmed through the CTB formula, it maintains those and does not disrupt those projects. But with the unallocated balances that were set aside for House Bill 2, it uh, puts 50% of the statewide level and <coughs> back to the district on the district grant program. Well, Mr. Chairman, because we haven't had any money over the CTB formula. Are we going to? Mr. Chairman and Mr. Jalen, there was about $460 million that was set aside that was included. Was it the fiscal year? It's over several fiscal years. We set that aside in the last six-year program. And recall, we deallocated funds right. off of projects that were subject to House Bill 2. Mm -hmm. And so you have those funds. And then also Mr. Lawson at the last board meeting, and we'll talk about it in more detail either later today or tomorrow morning, we're also ramping down the size of the revenue sharing program at the state level. Remember, it grew from about $15 million in 2007 up to 185 in a very, very short period of time. And so we're going to ramp that back down 
that ramp down, along with the $416 million, does provide some funds between FY16 and FY20 that will then get back to the districts and be available at the statewide level for allocation. Mr. Chair, the question, the reason I'm going there is because the statewide or the CTD formula is discretionary. It's up to $500 million. Unless, unless this law changes it. That is correct. And so, uh, what, what I'm, I, and it sounds like we're going to have some money. What I, what I want to do, I want some money to be able to flow through the HP2 formula because we're not going to yes. get it right the first time. No, it is. It is. So we can see that before all of it's going. That, that's correct. Okay. That way it works. Right. And, and by the way, it can go up to 500, uh, Mr. Bell, but we've yeah. never gotten there. Exactly. Well, that was my earlier. We've never gotten there. Yes. So. And Mr. Freeland, uh, in Mr. Lawson's presentation, he'll walk through the exact amount that is available, but there are significant funds that are available during the 16 to 20 period, in addition to the funds that become available in a new formula in FY21. But like Council too, Mr. Freeland, it is going to be a clip that says walk up to that, prepare for it, and that regard. So I want to talk a little bit about each of these programs. Uh, the first is the State of Good Repair program, and this is dedicated funding for major rehabilitation, reconstruction, and replacement of interstate and primary pavements and any structurally efficient bridge across the Commonwealth. And I really want to stress here, this includes locally owned as well as state-owned assets. So in the past, there have been times where if a project was located in a county versus city, they were treated slightly differently. Under this program, regardless of ownership, there's parity and equity and treatment between locally and state-owned assets. Uh, the other thing that's related to this program is the bill requires this body to develop a priority ranking system that's going to be used to distribute funds back to the districts for the State of Good Repair program, and that system, by law, has to take into account the number, condition, and cost of structurally efficient bridges, as well as the number, condition, and cost to repair uh, primary and interstate lane miles that are deficient. The, the board has until July 1, 2016 to develop that priority ranking system. However, the board cannot program the state of good repair funds to projects until this uh, system is in place. And so we're going to work with Commissioner Kilpatrick and others to try and get you information in advance of that so that if you want to, uh, in effect, adopt the priority ranking system in advance of that, during the next six-year program update, you'll have the opportunity to start programming these funds sooner. The other thing that I wanted to point out is there was concern in the legislature that no district got either too much or too little funding under the State of Good Repair program, so they did put some parameters about how funds would be made available to those districts, and they said that no district, regardless of the uh, condition of bridges and pavement, shall receive less than 5.5%, and similarly, no district shall receive more than 17.5% in any given fiscal year. One of the things that was added to this program as the bill moves through the General Assembly uh, was something dealing with secondary payment conditions. There was a lot of concern expressed by members of the General Assembly, uh, particularly from Mr. Garzinski's region, about the condition of secondary pavements. And so we reached a compromise with the legislators where there's a pop-up penalty, if you will, that exists in the State of Good Repair program. And so I told you its focus is on interstate and primary pavements, but in any year where the department is not meeting its secondary pavement target, this board is required to set aside some funds, up to 20% of this program, for the improvement of secondary pavements uh, throughout the Commonwealth. 
and we're really working with VDOT right now to kind of develop some of that information again to provide to the board. But as you know, we are currently not meeting our secondary payment targets, so a lot of the figures you'll see in Mr. Lawson's presentation have this pop-up penalty built into it um, today. Over time, if we meet that target, this penalty can you know, wind down and go away. But this was kind of a check that was put in here by the legislature to make sure that secondary payments also received uh, the attention they thought was appropriate from the department and this board. Uh, the next major program in the new formula, Mr. Chairman, is the High Priority Projects Program. Um, as the board is aware, this is a statewide discretionary program for projects of regional and statewide significance. Uh, I do want to highlight this is a multimodal program. It can fund highways, transit, rail, and other transportation solutions. Uh, for a project to be funded under this program, it must be evaluated and scored under the House Bill 2 process. It must either be uh, enhanced the corridor statewide significance or help improve travel in one of the 14 metro areas in the Commonwealth. Within this program, there's also a set-aside for the Innovation and Technology Transportation Trust Fund. This is the kind of smart roadway technology. For any of you all who drove down I-64 yesterday, you kind of saw the reach the beach signs where it tells you when 64 is backed up, it might be faster to go down US 60. That's what this type of set-aside here is intended to capture. And the board is required to set aside funds. Um, the amount is variable, but cannot exceed $25 million in a given fiscal year. Uh, the next program. One question, Nick, on the high-priority projects, where will they emanate from? Uh, Mr. Garzinski, I think that is something the board is going to determine through the House Bill 2 process. The current staff recommendation to the board is that these come mostly from the MPOs and local governments, but that the board retaining uh, the authority to submit up to one or two projects in a given solicitation period in case there are missing, glaring missing gaps in the project that was submitted. Okay, I think Mr. Freeland had pointed that out before, and I'm interested in that. That and also the frequency of the update in House Bill 2. So that's something that uh, may be touched on uh, in the House <coughs> presentation, but that's well, you know what we're on the staff recommendation. And I, I do want to note this program does not have legislative requirements around this, uh, unlike the construction district grant program, which does walk into some of those. So the remaining 27.5% of the formula will be distributed back to the districts for projects that are submitted by local governments and evaluated using the House Bill 2 process. Um, funds that are sent and made available to a district can only be used for a project within that district. Similarly, this board can only fund projects that are submitted by local governments for consideration under this program. And that was something the legislature thought was important as they saw this as kind of replacing a lot of the work the old secondary and urban programs did where local governments could directly select projects. And so again, this was part of the compromise as we moved through the legislative session. Um, to be funded, a project must be submitted by local government, meet a need in the long-range transportation plan, which again is the core of statewide significance, something one of those metro areas, the locally designated growth areas, or safety deficiency that's been identified in the long-range plan, and then again, the project will be evaluated using House Bill 2. Uh, just as the high-priority projects program had a set-aside, this program also has a set-aside within it, uh, and the board must set aside funds for unpaved roads. Again, that amount is variable and up to the board in each fiscal year. Uh, it cannot exceed $25 million. 
and those funds will be distributed back to local governments as the unpaid road funds are today. Uh, one of the questions I think we received a few times is how, how, is, how do we determine how much funds are made available to a given district? And what the legislation does is it takes an hybrid formula that combines the old primary, secondary, and urban formulas and distributes the funds to each district using that formula. And this is what that formula is, Mr. Chairman, members of the board. I'm not going to walk through all of this. You have the presentation. But it is a self-updating formula where population and BMT do make up the bulk um, of how the the criteria that's used to distribute that, and then things like land area and need factors are also considered. It's very well accepted by the legislature. They understand this formula, and it is it makes it self-adjusting. So population change is actually it's self-adjusting. So I thought that was a fair way to get back to this. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I want to also now talk about some of the other aspects of the bill that don't do with the formula. I think a lot of our discussion here at the board level is really focused on that aspect. And so I'm going to walk through some of the other changes that are also included in the bill. Um, Delegate Rust, who is the uh, outgoing chairman of the House Transportation Committee, uh, talked with Commissioner Phil Patrick and really said, you know, we're doing a lot of work on the construction side with prioritizing how we're picking funds. Let's bring in some of that to the highway maintenance and operating fund as well. And so this bill does include provisions directing the commissioner to update the asset management practices that have been in place since the about 2004 or 2005. And that's resulted in those pavement targets and bridge targets that you see today. And so it's going to ask the commissioner to come up with a transparent methodology to describe how you're allocating the funds between the different construction districts. And then within those districts, how are you determining the allocation between different types of systems, so the interstate primary and secondary systems. Uh, and this methodology uh, is required to be reported uh, in the VDOT Commissioner's Annual Report on an annual basis. Another change is to the annual report. And so it, again, really hones in on the highway maintenance and operating fund and how those funds are used. Today, that report talks about the current pavement and bridge targets for the two-year biennium that we're in. Under the changes that were made in this bill, we now also have to go to the next two-year biennium, so we'll cover a four-year period, really looking out to see how our investments driving the condition of the roadway network in the Commonwealth. The other major change to the annual report is with the changes that were made to the Commonwealth Transportation Board, this board now has the authority to add additional content that it would like to see included in the annual report um, through policy guidance, and that would be something the commission will include in future updates. Um, I think the other part of 1887 that we talked about the most is the changes to the Commonwealth Transportation Board. So as you all know, um, in the past, this board served at the pleasure of the governor. Now the governor signed this bill starting July 1, 2016. Members can, may only be removed for cause. Um, cause, under the Code of Virginia, includes various items listed in that second bullet, things like malfeasance, misfeasance, uh, neglected duty, and misconduct. Uh, the other thing that the secretary talked about is it does remove the VPA executive director um, from the board, and it also provides that the senior member of the board shall serve as the vice chair, which is a trained where in the past the VDOT commissioner has served as the vice chair. Um, one of the things the bill does say is if there's several senior members, then the board shall vote for a vice chair out of those senior members to determine which one they would like to have serve as the vice chair. Another change in 1887 is to provide $40 million starting in the next fiscal year for transit capital funds, and this was to offset 
some of the reduced funding because of the failure of lack of passage of the Marketplace Fairness Act in Congress and the expiration of the CPR bonds. This does not fully offset those reductions, but it is a very meaningful step in the right direction to help provide transit funding to the, our local operators. The funds came from a host of different places. Um, what I would say is every mode of transportation, uh, port, aviation, rail, and highways helped fund this $40 million over the next, you know, uh, moving forward starting FY17. And as the Secretary has said, no mode received an aggregate cut from the increase they received in uh, the revenue package for House Bill 2313. Absolute dollars, every mode got more money. It just didn't get as much as we hadn't done this, but there was no cuts in funds, so let's make sure that's clear. Yes. Um, this board did award a $50 million loan to the City of Alexandria in January, and that left the bank with about $3 million for the foreseeable future. Uh, and so moving forward, the bank will get annual deposits of about two-thirds of the interest earnings, which are going to range from about 5 to $10 million annually, and allow this board to continue to give loans to local governments that are looking to leverage some of their resources. It also required that the uh, scoring process and evaluation process under this bank be better aligned with a lot of the conditions under House Bill 2, whereas before they had two different evaluation criteria. Another change from the bill was providing dedicated funding for the Transportation Partnership Opportunity Fund. This is a flexible funding pot that is available to the administration to help provide transportation infrastructure for economic development projects. This fund, just like the infrastructure bank, lacked a dedicated funding source. Uh, I believe also in 2011 the board provided about $100 million in one-time funding to this fund. That funds are basically <coughs> been expended. The current balance is at $6.2 million. And so moving forward, this fund will get about 3 to $5 million annually as anticipated in interest earnings to help support economic development projects across the Commonwealth. Uh, what changed is those funds used to go to the toll facilities revolving account. Um, and that is the account that VDOT has used to build the Poet Parkway extension and provide loans to VDOT-sponsored toll projects across the state. As we do a lot of partnering with the private sector and 6320 corporations, we thought it was appropriate to redistribute these funds to the infrastructure bank and also to the TPOF account to really allow us to better utilize those funds. There's currently an outstanding balance of about $40 million in this account, um, and the Route 460 project also has an $85 million line of credit. Um, as the current project is likely not going to be a toll road, those funds will be returned um, to this account, and then the <coughs> legislation provides that this board may transfer any balances in this account to the infrastructure bank, again, providing more funds to this board to loan out to local governments. There are several provisions dealing with passenger and freight rail in the omnibus bill. I think the most important one is one that provides the Department of Rail and Public Transportation with additional tool in its toolbox as it looks to uh, improve 95 passenger rail corridor. And this would allow the director of DRPT to enter into an availability payment public-private partnership on a one, this is one-time authority, it expires on January 1st, 2018. Uh, this is not saying that the way we move forward with the 95 corridor will be a public-private partnership. It's merely providing another tool for this board and Director Mitchell to consider as we evaluate the best way to enhance rail service along that vital corridor of the Commonwealth. 
The other thing that the bill did is it did reduce the funding provided to the Rail Enhancement Fund by about a third. Uh, the rationale behind that is we did a review of the uses of the Rail Enhancement Fund, and about 50% of those funds over the life of the Rail Enhancement Fund to date have been used to support passenger rail service. As the board may recall, the 2013 revenue package provided dedicated funding to the inner city passenger rail operating capital fund, and with that we felt there was enough kind of cushion in that fund to be able to reduce it by about a third without doing any harm to our freight rail investments throughout the Commonwealth. Linked to that reduction, uh, Ms. Mitchell and her uh, staff at the department are going to be undertaking a review of the rail enhancement fund, kind of a 10-year review of seeing how it's worked and whether or not there are things that need to be updated so they'll be reported to the board and the General Assembly on that in the coming months. Yes, with the CTV. And that was the topic of this morning's uh, uh, rail subcommittee. Yeah, just to be clear, any recommendations would go through the CTV and would be approved by mm -hmm. the full CTV as a vetted first by the rail committee. Uh, one of the other provisions, uh, and this is the last slide on the omnibus bill, was something dealing with the expansion of rail transit. Um, there's been an ongoing debate in the General Assembly and across the Commonwealth about whether uh, essentially light rail, streetcar, or a metro extension in the future would need to go through the House Bill 2 evaluation process. Um, and there are several legislators who were very, very concerned that they thought those projects would be exempt. And so an amendment was added to the bill that would require any project that expands a fixed guideway rail project to expand it would be required to go through the House Bill 2 evaluation process. Um, something I would say to the board is all of the major uh, rail transit projects that have been built in the Commonwealth in the last 10, 20 years have used flex highway funds and so they would have already been subject to this process. So really this amendment is something that provided additional comfort to several members of the General Assembly who are concerned that there might be ways that one of these projects would move forward without being evaluated under the House Bill 2 process. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I'm just going to touch very briefly on the Governor's P3 bill. Um, this passed a very, very wide margin, unanimous in the Senate, with and only one dissenting vote in the House. Um, the board is generally familiar with these provisions, so I just want to let you know the final uh, shakeout. So again, the bill codifies the Transportation Public-Private Partnership Advisory Committee. It's going to have seven members, two members of this board, the Deputy Secretary of Transportation, the CFO of the Procuring Agency, um, a member of the Secretary of Finance's staff or one of the public financial agencies, and then also very importantly, the Staff Director of the House Appropriations Committee and the Staff Director of the Senate Finance Committee which will bring in that legislative involvement up front. This committee will vote on whether or not it makes sense to move forward with a P3 procurement for a given project, and that's something that must take place before the procuring agency moves forward to initiate procurement under the PPTA. Chairman, I got this news release that came out March 30th about uh, seeking public feedback on the public-private partnership. Uh, and that was while that the Doug Coolbay and his office just looking at what they've been out there for a while, just getting any additional comments. Well, we got well, we we got comments before we revised it, and then now we've got a bill. And I, I was curious about how this fits into 
So, so we were curious too, but I'm just saying they're getting comments. Mr. Freeland, the document that you and Mr. Williams worked on last fall on the overarching P3 guidelines, these documents that have been released for public comment are documents related to that. It's not the P3 guidelines that you worked on, but it's subset documents, as the Commissioner said, that further document how some of the items in those guidelines will be handled. Okay. Would, Jim, would, would any change or would any change to the guidelines come here? Not, not unless approved by, by, by the CPA. Okay. Yes. Mr. Chairman, uh, as uh, Deputy Secretary Donahue just went through the uh, involvement of the legislature, uh, this goes into effect 7 1 2015, right? Yes, sir. Okay. So, in that case, does that mean the potential of a P3 on 66 would have to go through the legislative body review as well? It's not potential. It will go. It will go. We're, going, we're going to follow those. If we go through If we do, I know that. But I just wanted to make sure what the process would be. It would be. Yes. It would be difficult to say. We have a law, mm -hmm. uh, but we're not going to do it. So people are going to work through that process. And by the way, on that comment, we're going to start doing it at these meetings to try to give you a heads up of things that will be briefed the next. And we do believe, we'll be in Northern Virginia, that we will be briefing you on where we are with, with 66 and uh, a recommendation on procurement uh, in that meeting. Just uh, to follow up on P3, the, the risk management guidelines that were circulated for public comment, are there any additional guidelines? I think there are additional guidelines contained in the I think it's also probably involved in the CPD. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 House Bill 1887 new allocation formula. So the project service statewide CPOP district. Is it can that can that funding stream be towards uh, debt service? Uh, Mr. Chairman, Mr. Allen, those funds would not be able to support debt service as the bill was uh, enacted. We do have a separate account that was not impacted by that bill. It's called the Priority Transportation. Fund uh, that fund was given additional revenues in the 2013 bill, so the, the board does have a source of money that is generally used to support debt service. Um, we would need additional authorization from the general assembly to be able to exercise um, that authority, which would impact that allocation. Yes, sir. If we were able to issue additional debt, and, and I think that's uh, a focus I mentioned with the board, I and mean, the focus of this year will be infrastructure and Commonwealth will be submitting from uh, the transportation side what we think would be appropriate for additional uh, bonding mm -hmm. you know, with the entire commonwealth being set of this. And I have one last question just so I understand what you said. The difference between state of good repair and maintenance is state of good repair is just major research to bridge and then it's generally the major reconstruction. So when you go in and patch a pothole, that's maintenance. When you plow snow, that's maintenance. When you rip up the road for several miles and then completely rebuild it, that's state of good repair. So the road right out here is what generated uh, a big part of this provision. P64 was allowed to disintegrate. It wasn't new capacity, so it didn't leave any construction. 
and you couldn't take it all the time. So that is state of good repair. That is not new capacity, but it's making sure we take care of that infrastructure, just like 264, that never gets in that position. But the work we did prior to us waking up and fixing this problem was underneath. That's correct. Well, it was, you know, Mr. Kilpatrick, but it was sort of not, uh, it was sort of never, never. Well, the, the, um, over the years at BDOT, we said it's either construction or it's maintenance. There's this broad area that, that really, frankly, falls in between. Some people call it capital replacement or capital repair. I, I liken it to the difference between painting your house and replacing the siding on your house. We're not building a bigger house, but it, it's gone beyond the point of being able to repaint. In the maintenance world, um, again, we had very separate accounts, but over the past decade, we are uh, crossing over construction funds to the maintenance program. We've been doing that for a number of years, both state and federal funds, so the line, frankly, has gotten blurred. What this, what this bill does is clearly identify and recognize that you have capital repair, capital replacement, things that go beyond normal maintenance and normal overlay schedules to extend the life of a bridge or a roadway. And that's really what this, this does. There's no more of this, which bucket does it fall in. It's, it's pretty clear now that we have this dedicated uh, source for uh, what, I, again, I use the term capital repair and capital replacement, and, and that's really what this is for. It is an asset management program by VDOT, which we never anticipate getting another road condition this one was in, just like that. Bottom line. Uh, the bill, the governor's P3 bill, also established and codified requirements for finding a public interest. These are similar to the previous discussions that we have. Generally, we'll walk through what risks, liabilities, responsibilities are kept by the private, the public sector, and which ones are transferred or assigned to the private sector. Again, this is done prior to the initiation of formal procurement, and before a comprehensive agreement can be assigned signed by the commissioner or director Mitchell. The secretary, along with either the commissioner or the director, would need to certify that the comprehensive agreement is in material compliance with that finding of public interest. Which is to say, if it's not, they can't sign the deal. Or you broke the law. I didn't want to presuppose any actions. <laughs> and the last part of the governor's P3 bill is similar uh, to the resolution this board adopted in May of 2014 directing the commissioner to come up with a process to identify high-risk projects and to put in place procurement procedures to make sure that uh, risk is mitigated before significant funds are expended on a project to really protect the taxpayer's resources when the board decides to move forward with a high-risk project. And this is something the commissioner has already been implementing since this board provided that guidance last night. This just codifies that requirement and makes sure it stays in place regardless of future uh, CTVs. So the major sponsor of this bill, uh, Governor Christian, has worked closely with. This, uh, just to be honest with you, this bill was a direct result of 416. Direct result. Uh, it was a procurement uh, that uh, did not have a lot of input. Uh, it was a procurement that changed. Uh, and, uh, and there was no going back and reassessing. So, uh, this is to limit, uh, these provisions are to limit the overreach by the executive branch or others and, and influence on DDOT and also 
to, to make sure it's all transparent. Uh, the last bill uh, that I wanted to discuss here today very briefly is a bill that we haven't talked about previously. This is House Bill 1402. It was sponsored by Delhi Lucasi, who comes from the Richmond area. And what it was intended to deal with was the issue of cities and towns that maintain their own roadways. Um, today, a, a city and town cannot receive maintenance payments if they convert a moving lane mile um, from something for cars to something for transit or for bicycles. Um, as the board may recall, the city of Richmond did receive a Tiger Grant last year to build the uh, bus rapid transit system along Broad Street. Uh, those buses are going to be in exclusive lanes for a fair portion of that project. Under our current law, as the city converts those lanes to bus-only lanes, they would actually get less money from the state to maintain that pavement, even though likely the buses would be causing more damage to allow that pavement. So this bill was intended to address some of those issues. Um, there's an engrossed version of the bill right now that provides when a moving lane is converted to a transit-only lane, a city or town will continue to receive the same maintenance payments they previously received. Um, one of the other things the bill was trying to deal with was the UCI bike championship race that's coming to the city of Richmond. And the city is looking at putting a lot of bike infrastructure in place to capitalize on the economic development aspects of that race. However, again, under current law, whenever they transfer a moving lane mile to a bike lane, they would receive less payment from the state to maintain those facilities. So the engrossed bill requires the secretary and his staff to study over the next year what would be the appropriate maintenance payment rate for a lane converted from a moving lane mile into a bike lane. And then it also provides that the city of Richmond can continue to receive maintenance payments for a one-year period for any moving lane miles they convert to a bike lane between July of 2014 and July of 2016. The governor did submit some amendments for the General Assembly to consider tomorrow. Those amendments would provide that the city of Richmond can convert up to 20 moving lane miles to, between now and July of 2016 and continue to receive uh, maintenance payments at the same rate on just those lane miles in perpetuity. And then the secretary would still continue to conduct a study for any future conversions, either in the city of Richmond or other cities and towns that maintain their own roads. would have some announcements uh, and some public uh, he'll choose to do so between now and the effective date of the bills uh, in terms of, uh, of uh, the actual uh, signing to that uh, All right. Uh, moving on then, we're, uh, I think we're going to go to House Bill 2. Um, update. Uh, if that's okay with you, Mr. Lawson, we'll move on to that. Yeah, uh, members of the board, um, I'm here today along with uh, two key members of the House Bill <coughs> that have been working on this process throughout this. And they're actually going to do the bulk of the presentation here because they've been doing the hard work of really running through this pilot uh, test scoring that we talked about. Um, I do want to just, before we get into the presentation, say we don't have scores for you. 
um, this month. At the last meeting, I said it was either going to be April or May. And as we went through um, the process, we, we learned some things, which I think you all suspected, and, and we did as well. And so uh, Chad Tucker here is doing a lot of work on running the actual pilot testing, and Tommy DeJulian here is actually leading the House Bill 2 team. And so you know, I just want to give you a quick little update that in May, we're going to come back with scores as well as some recommendations based on the things we've learned in the scores as well as the feedback we have received to date and expect to receive at the six-year improvement program hearings. Um, and with that, I'm going to turn it over to these guys who are going to walk you through a lot of the things that they've found as they've gone through this pilot scoring process. Good morning, Mr. Chairman, members of the board. My name is Tommy DeJulian. Um, I work for VDOT out of the Salem District, and I've been spending the last several months working on uh, Council <coughs> 2 implementation. This is just an outline of some of the things that we're going to cover here. Uh, as Nick uh, mentioned, uh, we're in the process of scoring the sample projects, and we're going to talk a lot about uh, what we're finding and some of the challenges and recommendations moving forward. We showed you this chart uh, last month. This is really just a, a flow chart showing some of the pieces involved in scoring the projects. So starting on the left-hand side, you're looking at a project that's already been screened. Uh, Mr. Donahue mentioned in order to go through House Bill 2, projects have to be screened to make sure they meet a need uh, in V-Trans. Uh, so starting with the screen project, we would then move into calculating the HP2 measures the values of those measures. So what we're talking about there is within each of the six factor areas, taking congestion as an example, the uh, decrease in the person hours of delay, actually calculating those delay hours would be reduced by a particular project and moving down through all of the measures within the six factor areas. The next box to the right uh, would be the internal and external uh, review and QAQC. Uh, we talked last month about that external group involving folks like VML, um, they have some of those types of agencies to have a tra transparent process and make sure that we've got the project right and consistent. Uh, after that, those calculations are done and the QHCC is done, you see the vertical boxes and three boxes, those are the inputs to go into developing a project score. That includes those measure values that were calculated along with the uh, weights of the, each of the measures, so in congestion, We've got the person hours of delay decreased as well as the uh, increase in person group for each of those are worth 50% in the congestion measure. So there's 50% weight going into the calculation as well as the overall uh, weighting framework. So if you're in category A, for example, the congestion is worth 35%. So that gives in as an input. And then the lower, the bottom box talks about the project cost. Everything has to be uh, scored relative to the cost that actually is in as a factor or input in order to develop the project score. That just gives you an idea of the flow of some of the work that Chad has been doing. Speaking of the, the factor weighting frameworks, this, this graphic is not changed. This is the same uh, weighting framework that were presented to the board previously. Same graphic that uh, we've been receiving quite a bit of input on from all the states. Uh, we've, we've been around the state uh, in each of the districts uh, soliciting input on this, this waiting framework. That's a policy guide. And I would say that we've been, um, we've gotten a lot of input on this. We've heard from a lot of PDCs and MPOs that would like to change the policy that they've been um, indicated as being in. 
time, we're continuing to get, get feedback from them, and what we plan to do is come back in May with a revised waiting framework that incorporates a lot of that input from folks that refer from around the state. Mr. Chairman, would, would you like us to ask questions now, or would you like us to hold, sir? On that particular slide, Tommy, um, I've got like MPOs um, and or T TPOs or whatever that are asking for different criteria, and like the um, Blacksburg MPO wants they, they don't want to be category B, they want to be category C. Can my original understanding of this bill was that each construction district would have to settle on one of these categories A, B, C, or D. Are we saying that within each construction district, there could be subsets that are be scored differently? Yes. And, and that's what this slide right here represents? Yeah. It's the, the way that these weighting frameworks were set up is based on um, the PDC boundaries excluding the MPO areas. So the MPO, you can run a runner MPO or even the New Valley MPO, Within those boundaries, they would be they would have a separate. It might be the same one, but they would be um, they would have a weighting framework, okay. and the PDC surrounding those MPOs would have a framework. Because well, here's here's where it gets confusing. Because you got PDC and you got MPO, <laughs> you got you got leader you know, room that I know. I remain confused, so it's not a big deal. But. Um, where you've got a PDC that say wants category <coughs> A and an NPO that wants category C, got to do it. Have different. So it's like, it's well, like but they know they cover the same land. But in terms of, in terms of, a, I'll call it, I don't know, if hierarchy is the right term. But if you have an NPO which fall, all NPOs fall within some PDC. True. The NPO can have a different. Uh, uh, criteria than the broader PDC. So the projects within the MPO would follow that criteria. The balance in the PDC would follow the PDC's criteria. Does that kind of help the right? So, no, so the, on this map, if we if if we decide to grant the New River Valley MPO's request, this, that portion of the sale district will turn red. Yes. Okay. All right. I, I understand that now. Can a locality, say Franklin County, wanted to do something different than Lerner County? Are they, are they allowed to change the? The way this proposal was set up is that it would be all the counties within PDC. Outside of the Indian area. Thank you. Yeah, that, 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 yeah, otherwise we'd get everybody picking up score. Exactly. To your point, Mr. Fraley, we will bring this map back in May that will be updated based on all the, the feedback that we've received from the new percent In response to what Mr. Fraley said, Bill, are you talking about also changing uh, the factors or sticking with the six that we have? But well, we haven't gotten factors yet. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm just saying, assuming that these are the factors okay. that 
can, within a construction district, can we have different factors between a PDC and a different place? A good example would be if you're looking at the Stanton district, you can see the carve out for that's the uh, uh, MPL in Harrisonburg and the one in uh, Augusta, Augusta Stanton. And you can see how they're the different colors for those two. That's not Mr. Who does the name of the exact area that? Who colors this map? Was it based on feedback from the NPS? No, this, uh, this map was developed. Uh, we have consultants working with the Cambridge Systematics that uh, went back starting in the fall looking at um, various data sets, population, uh, population groups, um, the NPS, and a lot of just characteristics of the different parts of the technical process group areas into this is something to revision because you're going to get some comments. Yeah, yeah, this, this, is the same, this is the same the same map that we've had for several months and the board has been receiving the input for. Right. And Mr. Secretary, members of the board, if you want to really take comments back and forth there, we voted about the public comment at the last meeting. One of the things we said to the folks that are providing the input is we're not going to change this as you're giving the input. We're going to take all that input and come up with revisions. But we want to have one document for the reaction during the public comment period. And I will just be one. We've got a lot of feedback on how this map is colored. And I expect when we come back to you today, it's going to be some different colors in a few places. Right. Um, Mr. your region in particular, our region meeting are pretty loud. More about what color they were. We've heard some other things from Mr. Craven's region. But we were not changing it right now because we didn't think that that would really make a manageable process. And we thought it would really confuse a lot of stakeholders, undermine our ability to get meaningful public comment. I'm assuming we're fairly set on the percentages that are set to the, the as the weight for the factors right now. So you're going to be A, B, C, or D, and these are the percentages you're going to deal with. Or is that still in flux? I think that's still, we still want input on that. Uh, ultimately, I think the, the board would, would decide that it's waiting, and we are, we are getting input on it. But the, 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 as a follow-up to that, we're not going to have a situation where we've got five MPOs that want a DST, but they want all these weights to be different for each one of them. I mean, we're just going to be able to design the formula to suit their no, perfect no, that's, that's, that's not going to happen. Good. I was hoping that would be the answer. But it is still in flux as to what it's going to finally be. And then once it is, we'll, we'll deal with that. Yeah, what we're finding, Mr. Wynn, is, is, is that they see how things work, that they're already trying to say, well, we're going to be a little better. You know? right. And I like to again, we're trying to say, when we get the process done, we've, we've always discussed that this is the only factor. It'll really be when we get it done, we score through, and we say, oh, we get it. Maybe everything in here you don't totally agree with, but if you represent it, that's what the issue is. And again, it's also a great score against others. Not just the absolute numbers, but. Mr. Donovan, you mentioned uh, we have not finished scoring all those projects, uh, the table projects, but we were going to run through the process here. Chad and his team working really hard on that, but we did want to give you this overview of the 30 odd projects that we selected um, to, to run through the process. We tried to make this sort of uh, across the state. Uh, we've got projects in each district. 
This is something that the board was pretty clear about we wanted to see. That's right. It sounds like we're not going to see it till May. Yes, that's right. We'll see it in May. Um, so, I mean, I understand that. And this is complicated. It's the first time we've ever done it. I, 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 I get that. But can we see what these projects are that are getting scored? Mr. Chairman, Mr. Chairman, I would recommend strongly against that and seeing how the why. What we're going to do is give you all the information about each of these projects. You can figure out kind of what type of area it's located in. We're going to tell you what the project does. So we're dividing how much growth, we're dividing how much it costs, and things of that nature. So you can understand the type of project and the location. Um, what we didn't want to do was give a specific project. And when someone comes in on that one project, we're trying to take out geographic preference or and that I mean now that doesn't mean after we score them all uh, and the board really uh, wants to see the same particular project because we're trying to not presuppose what the scoring would be well, I understand, Mr. Chairman. I understand, Nick, and I know it's a strong preference. Let me just push back a minute. Um, to really have us understand what this means, we have to know whether or not projects that have been built would have been built. And that, that's, that's, you know, and, and that's why I keep going at the truck climbing lanes on 81. You, you know I'm concerned about 81. I'm concerned about congestion score on 81. I'm concerned about that. I want to know whether those widening lanes would have been accomplished or not under this formula before I can know whether or not I support it. Mr. Chairman, Mr. Chairman, I, I very much understand that number. We are trying to find a lot of information about the types of projects we evaluate. One thing I think is would not be a fair comparison is to assume that a project that was built not going through a scoring process that gets a score would be the exact same way as that. So I think there are a lot of projects we've built in the past where we could have built them in a more efficient, cost-effective manner that dramatically changed their score. And the scores we provide you now can't take any of that into account. So, for example, on um, credit per district, throughout um, 630 and 140, at first, they did $185 million, $185 million, all the way to $185 million. Well, once we went back in and the revenue companies and looked at it, they found a way to deliver the exact same project that I think the commissioner thinks will be as effective, if not more, for about $40 million less. If we scored that over $185 million project, you would focus on that, even though in the future the project that we move forward might have been a different scope project with a different cost, which is going to drive that outcome. Yeah, but, Mr. Chairman, there's always going to be the cost pressure. There's always going to be try to design it cheaper. And how, the more cost you put on the denominator, we're going to get into that. I assume. 
in, in a little bit, but the more cost you put on the denominator, right, the, the, the lower the score. So there's always, you're presupposing that we wouldn't have redesigned that anyway. And I think that's right, we would have. And, and I think what we actually paid is, unless we're going out spending a bunch of money where we could have saved a bunch of money, I don't think we're doing that. of the category is really going to be left primarily in the hands of the MPOs and not in our hands. We're not going to be able to, to play around and say, well, we don't, we don't like where Winchester is, you know, and I'd like to see it put in some other category. My understanding is that's not our discretion. It is. I'm saying who is there? Mr. Chairman, that is this board's discretion of the law that's all that authority really is in over. I think what the staff we are trying to do is make sure that we actively provide you the prevalence that was established by the MPO and the PDC 
um, that might be helpful. On the right-hand side, we would have some more general project information, the project map, uh, sort of scope description of the project, as well as on the bottom right-hand corner, we, we've got this, this sort of idea of project readiness that might be additional information on the project that might be provided by the sponsor um, that may be uh, information that the board would want to see in making the funding decision. We have another example, again, just a similar type of thing, and we're, again, we're just working through these, trying to come up with some, some ways to, to provide the board uh, information that you need. This is, uh, I got a lot of the similar uh, information in it. Um, on the right-hand side shows some specific scoring that uh, the project would, would have received under the different factor areas. And on the, the bottom, sort of the middle of the screen, another graphical representation of how that project did within each of the factory areas. So, um, certainly would uh, look forward to any input over the coming months that, uh, as far as any other additional information the board would want to see on this type of graphic. Um, just to add to what we were discussing a few minutes ago, would it be possible rather than naming the specific project, if you just take the project and, and show us initially what it looks like, let's say it's a Category A, go ahead and show us what it would look like if it was a Category B without naming the project? Yeah, I think that's part of why we've been bringing the source to the board for now. We hope to run through seven different applications uh, looking at if the NPO stands they want to be a we have a being a short project to be also short of the show the board the differences in those scores. That was something we just weren't able to do well in the conference prior to the day meeting. So they the type of information we hope to provide um, to the board in May. We also hope to provide information to you all about two weeks in advance. So you have it um, for a fair amount of time before the next board meeting so you can go through the detail and be ready to ask all the questions um, and understand the information that you need. I think that, that again, it's the examples of fun uh, scorecards of how we would display all of the information will be available in terms of the inputs and the scores. But some of this ultimately will go to um, the more uh, the document that we're going to use day to day. Uh, what is what is more uh, uh, visually appealing, easier to understand at a programmatic level and even at a project level. Mm -hmm. All of the background detail will be available on every project. So this is really about for this board and for the public. What's a clean, what's a clean way of displaying the uh, project score? And similar, similarly to that, um, one of the things I know the board was was, look, was had requested several months ago was looking at ways to provide both uh, information on both the score relative to the total cost and the score relative to the HB2 cost. Um, this is a, a graphic. Um, we're still working on this as well, but this this is um, plotting those projects um, on the, the left or the y-axis. That's really the cost effectiveness based on the total cost. So the higher up on the graph, one of those bubbles is which represents the project. The higher up on the graph it is, the, the better it did relative to the total cost. Further to the right, um, one of those bubbles or projects are uh, the better it did uh, when you look at the school relative to the HP2 cost. Well, so I might as well go ahead and put this in here. What do you mean? 
is the main decision. We're going to calculate each one of these projects according to HB2 costs and versus total costs, or are we just going to do a total cost? I think we heard pretty clear several months ago that the board was interested in seeing both sets of information. And so this is what this means. I think that's true while we make the decision of what we're going to do, but I think to have two sets of scores going forward under every HB2 project, that makes sense. Yes, I agree. I think we're talking about just giving you the decision. Yeah, I agree. We hope to end up with a score. I thought this was an example of what we would be seeing on projects. The first two were this is sort of what would be a collection of projects. Gotcha. Because there is some discussion, as you know, from the denominator on the project. And with that, I'd like to turn it over to Chad. He's going to talk a little bit about what we've found so far for these projects. Mr. Chairman, members of the board, I'm going to walk you through here real quickly sort of progress to date on the pilot process and the data collection. Some of our findings and initial recommendations on how we think we need to tweak the process. One of the findings is really needing to clarify and provide consistent definitions, particularly for those items that are going to come from the applicant. So let me give you an example. One of the questions for the accessibility measure is, does the project encourage bike ped use? Well, there's a very wide range in how an applicant could determine whether or not the project does that. Or does the project enhance access to a parking ride lot? You might have a parking ride lot within a mile of the project. Is that project enhancing access to it? And so we see the need to make it much more clear as to what constitutes a yes or a no in those particular situations so that there's less wiggle room and room for interpretation within the process so that we get more consistent results upon which we measure the projects against one another. Another finding is the need to reduce the complexity of certain measures, particularly congestion, accessibility, and economic development. And I'll go through some of those in more detail here in a second. So for the safety factor area, you know, for these projects, we have the benefit of design plans, very detailed information upon which to determine what the potential safety benefits are going to be, what is going to be the crash modification factor that's going to be applied to the total number of crashes and the crash rate for that particular project. But as we move forward into this fall and we're getting applications from localities and regions, we really see the need to make sure we have clear scope items related to the application so it's very clear exactly what the project's doing. So an example would be we're going to widen the roadway from two to four lanes. We need to know is that going to have a raised median? Are we going to have right and left turn lanes? Because that's going to dictate the crash modification factor that you can apply. So one of our findings is more of a recommendation on how we build the application process so that those project features are very clearly identified and can be evaluated. Another finding is we've been focusing on fatalities and severe injury crashes. And those oftentimes don't cluster and can be very random in nature. And so you're sort of evaluating projects on decimal dust, if you will. 
this project's going to reduce 0.01 severe injuries, you know. Um, and, and so one of the things we're looking at is looking at a longer window. Right now we've been looking at three-year average, but look at a five-year average of crashes or total crashes, and perhaps expanding that to include other injury crashes, not just severe injuries. And that would help, because in the, in the end, the goal is to try to reduce um, fatalities and injuries. And if you've got less severe injuries occurring, that could indicate a risk for fatalities and injuries in the future. Do you have a question? Well, one of the things I'm very sensitive to, and I think we need to be sensitive to, this this matters a lot. Because if you change it from fatalities to severe injuries, and you start talking about fender benders, it changes substantially where these accidents occur. Because in localities with more traffic, there's more fender benders by definition. So this this is not, and, and I think we need to decide as a board whether we want our goal to be to reduce severe injuries and fatalities, or whether we want to reduce property damage. Yeah, it's not. And I, and I disagree with the premise that well, because it's hard to score, and you know, that, I mean, I understand maybe LinkedIn the window, or maybe looking at that, but. I do think we'll be looking at severe injuries and fatalities. Yeah, and we, we, we're not proposing looking at property damage only crashes. There are three levels of I understand that. I, I, my neck hurts. Okay. You know, it, that happens a lot. Or, or I had to go to the hospital to get checked out. Or I had to, you know, and, and we're defining severe injuries as severe injuries. And, um, and it makes a difference because you also, if you look at your uh, ratio of secondary roads versus primary and interstate highways, because high speeds equal more severe crashes. So, it, it, I, I think that um, the challenge that we have, as Chad mentioned, the, uh, the data points uh, for severe crashes, whether it involves fatality or not, uh, it becomes difficult because they are, uh, fortunately, we don't have clusters of, of these around the state where, we, where it, it gets to a level that is easily discernible that this location has a significantly higher fatality rate than other parts of the state. Again, that's, that's a little bit of the dynamic and the challenge that we're dealing with here. And that's why looking at, first of all, looking at a longer window, that, that helps because, again, more data points but also at least considering other types of injury crashes. To your point, um, urban areas, you may have more lower speed or congestion type property damage crashes. Um, but actually, I believe, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, our fatalities are also much higher in the urban areas than they are in rural parts of the state. Not percentage wise. I guess not change type of crashes. Recommend action first to see if you can focus on these more severe crashes and how it will the way. Okay. I think what Chad was telling you is as we run throughout this process, not taking any responsibility, we're going to do what we told you all we're going to do. We're going to change the base and what we get from the door. Right now, we're looking at sticking with severe injuries and fatalities and to see if there's a way we can get a broader number. 
capture kind of instance. Again, it may be occurring that someone dies every three years, which is very bad, but even one year, it could be zero. If you three, you might see a one and twelve water, you might be able to capture more incidents than the No problem with that. That's it. Is the waiting factor equalizer there, you know, the more rural areas where perhaps a more high speed, a more typical incident results in an injury versus a urban area. It's waiting at 30% versus 10%. I mean, is there a I'm not sure there is, but I'm asking. So I think the team's going to keep working on this issue. Right now, we're focused on severe injuries and fatalities. I don't think we're ever going to propose to offender vendors. We talked about that a lot. Offender vendors are actually protection problems, typically, they're not safety. Type of problems, and so we recognize that the team level. We're going to keep working on it. I think the main takeaway from the board right now is we're working on this. Um, it's not going as smoothly and safety as we thought it was going to be. We thought safety was a real slam dunk area, and turning out we may have to have some tools to work with differently than we first you know, thought. But we are going to focus on safety and not going to I not, not appreciate that. I'm sorry to ask you all the questions, but you know, we're going to vote on this in 60 days now. Yeah, but you have a chance to change it, too. Well, <laughs> I mean, my point is that's the whole reason we're having a year. You know, no, I get yeah, that. Right. But we are. We are going to vote on it in 60 days. But again, I, you're back to Mr. Williams' question, is, and I don't mean to be not saying that every one of these is important. I'm trying to get it right to can. It will issue is when we put it through this machine, what's, you know, it is going to stack up to what, you know, that, that's really what it is. So, what I would encourage the staff is to get us to a point where we can at least have a start and start looking at that. That's, that's really uh, you know, what they are. But, um, not to say that each one of these aren't extremely important and, and uh, we are model work sometimes counterintuitive things to, you know, Actually, give you better results. I'm not suggesting that here, but I think we ought to see what these four are. All right, for the um, for the congestion factor area, one of the findings was we were using all the tools at our disposal to try to understand what the project was going to do from the standpoint of increasing person throughput and increasing person hours of delay. So, where we had a travel demand model, we would run a travel demand model in the MPO area. Other instances, we were using highway capacity manuals, and you're really using different rulers uh, to measure the project, and that was causing uh, discrepancies, if you will, in the actual measurement of the benefits for the, for the project. So what we are working on right now in the process of wrapping up is developing a more uniform and consistent way at the planning level to evaluate different types of projects and what their potential benefit is going to be from the congestion standpoint so that we can comparably compare projects across the state in an equal manner. Mr. Chairman, have you looked at, we're limiting to only uh, level of service level E and below, is what the guidelines say. Have we looked at where, what that means in terms of regions? Uh, Take Bristol or take part of Salem if you want to. What does that mean? Does that mean we don't get any congestion score? The, the technique that we're working on right now is based off the volume to capacity ratio of, of the segment. The C in that is the capacity, and we're defining that at E. There is a speed reduction from a, a, a B to a from a level service B to a D. It's just not as great as if you're going from a level service F to a D, if that makes sense. And again, the same equalizer is the waiting factor. 
on that thing? It is. In, in the urban areas, like urban, urban areas, are showing your school versus 35%. Yeah, but if you give me 95, if I don't have any, they're going to make 10%. I don't have any, you shouldn't give it to me. Then why are you counting on my waiting back? This is kind of one of the things I was only half the testing school is based on the level of service. The other is based on throughput, person throughput, which any road in the Commonwealth can get points on the board on there. True. I think the chat point is you can still have some time savings even if you're not at level of service. Even if you're saying the path to the roadway is very good at level of service. What that means is that the interstate can move like 1,600 cars in Chattanooga and we're not done. He said to me before, and at E it's like 2200. And so you just calculate the lay based on that different capacity, which doesn't mean a road that has level service D and moves up to C couldn't get the sense of it. It just means they're not getting as many as the other It means they're, they're hamstrung and will not be able to get half the score. Because half the score is going to be, you have to be a level of service E or I'm going to follow up with what Bill's saying. Nick, I'm going to ask you a question here. That when you review the roster of the projects that are being scored right now, will you also evaluate before we see it the biases that may be built into that scoring on those particular projects, either positive or negative? Are you going, you know, you're going to start to see a theme that certain certain projects always have a negative bias, like Bill's was talking about, or a positive bias that affects the ultimate score. But it, I think you should do that. We're going to be looking at it in these scores. Chad is actually going back and working on these scores still. And as he said right here in this measure, we were using regional models in places like Rome and Salem and North Virginia. We were using micro-simulation on the interchange in 91, and they were using a different tool for some of the areas where neither one of those would work. Yeah, we were different answers. So right. we still got to refine these scores before we start to do some of that, but we're going to be doing that over the next three weeks. No, Mr. Chairman, I don't, I completely agree with that. We need a consistent, simple, measurable score. I mean, I, that's, and we need to use one standard, and, and I get all that. My question is about level service. I mean, why, why not D? Why not Steve? Why not, you know, What's magic about it? And and in, in, in the level of service manual, it, it, level of service E is typically when your capacity starts to break down. So if you're looking at speed, your speed will will stay fairly consistent up until E, and then once you reach that capacity, the the speed starts to drop precipitously. <coughs> If you set it at C, you're essentially setting your benchmark in an area where you may only have a four mile an hour reduction from the free flow speed. Gotcha. And so you really have to ask yourself, what are we trying to measure in the congestion factor area? And we feel that speed and delay are the same that for that particular uh, slice of pie that you're trying to evaluate that project through. Then, that, then that's how you would establish it. Because if you're going from, you know, 59 miles an hour to 62 miles an hour. No, no, Mr. Chairman, that makes sense. I think maybe it would help me, and somebody else may want this, to see what the service level of, if, if the data is available, readily available, where in the Salem District do we have service level B or below right now? I don't know how we calculate that, but I think I think we do. And that would be, that would be interesting for me to know. Mr. Chairman. 
is a follow-up to what the Senator Frey was saying. They do? In our areas, I know, I talk to them here. Is, I mean, I, I'm listening to him, and I understand what he's trying to do, and, and it's noble, and, and, and it's what he sent, was sent here for. But it, to get to the bottom line, that, that's what House Bill 2 is all about. If you don't have congestion, then that's not going to be part of your support, because part of the reason for HB 2 is direct the dollars to the problems. So. You, you're still going to have to have congestion as an issue to deal with, or your scoring process. No, I agree. Weighted much differently, so that and that might not be the perfect equalizer, but it's going to be somewhat of an equalizer. And that's exactly what this bill, and we're legislatively told to do this. We're not. This is not some policy thing we're doing. That's right. So it's doing exactly what it's designed to do. I, I really think the more I hear, the more I think it's. But I'd like to say this. That's true, except i got to pick what category I want to be. i got to know whether I want, maybe I don't want to be in category B. Maybe I do. You know, I, so so i got to know how that's going to affect the score. And, and um, the, the definition of what congestion means is important to for all to be measured on a consistent basis. So that's all, that's all I'm trying to do. Well, I'll just add one other layer to that. I mean, you can't remove congestion the category that you want to be in should not be the one that scores the highest. I mean, that's what we want it to be, because we're getting good money, but it really should be based on what you really are. But I know the natural thing is, if I'm running the I'm going to be the one that scores give me the highest score. So I got it. I know I understand what you're saying. Yeah. And that's one of the biases of some of the biases. That's exactly what I mean. You know, you say, oh, well, it's not this guy. But if you're really not that category, but anyway, I got it. I understand what you're saying. Now I'm going to I'm just saying there is some of the biases. That's right. I would just add a share of the will be accounting for that is we will be looking at things in the year 2025. 
So we will be casting out in 10 years. What do we anticipate the traffic volumes to be? So for the paper mill example, taking into account that traffic that's expected to be generated by the paper mill on the interchange and the surrounding street network and anticipating what the level of service and what the traffic volume is going to be 10 years from now. So we will be looking into the future at, the, at what we expect to be there uh, and base all of our calculations off of that. So am I to assume there are modeling devices out there that, that deal with those type of things? Yes, sir. Standard modeling? Fairly standardized. There's the trip generation manual that we can that we can utilize. And so there's ways that we can estimate how much traffic and things can be generated. Uh, I'm just going to make a brief observation here. This probably won't have any impact at all, but I'm sitting here listening to this discussion, and it takes me back to the time when I was Secretary of Education, and we were talking about the composite index, the formula that drives how schools are funded, and everybody sits down and looks at the chart and figures, how does this impact me? And that's the only criteria. And at some point, somebody's got to step back and say, this is the system that is fair, it's equitable, and it's in the best interest of the state. Some people are going to be winners, some people are going to be losers, and we need to have some ways of adjusting that. Of adjusting that. But we could go on, and we've been talking about composite index changes for certainly the 25 years since I was there. And nobody's ever stepped up to come to a conclusion. I, I just make that observation at some point, we're going to have to realize you cannot do something that's going to satisfy everybody. So we ought to do something that's in the best interest of the Commonwealth. And people need to understand that. And that's why I was trying to get us to a point and reminding us that it's absolute, not the absolute score, it's how it compares across. And that every point we always face that that is a the fact that it's going to make the score, but it is not so. But I get, I mean, you know, either the, uh, there are, as I pointed out, there are some counterintuitive things that actually, you know, maybe there are all the inputs are wrong, but if it gives you the right output, I'm not suggesting that. What I'm saying is let's see how this, where we are, get the staff to report to see what that gives Well, and let me just, one other observation is the one difference is that in the composite index, you can't change it until everybody agrees. In this situation, you can adopt this, whatever it is you adopt, but we still don't have to adhere to it. You just go ahead and make a decision, and as long as you put on the record why you made the decision, that's it. So, and you're free to revisit it. Yeah. I think that's one of the things that we first introduce on, and every year. I'm sure the first time through, we may or may not get it right. And you know, that doesn't mean it doesn't have value. It just means that we learn more. But then I do not protect against what was right. I saw this happen here in Hampton Roads. They had all this stuff. They came to us. They put it up on the board and said, well, we don't want it to be like the way it shows. And so they changed. And I'm sure that happened in New York and up there, too. Mm -hmm. And it gets back to our objective point, Mr. Guys. I mean, are we really trying to get an objective look or are we just trying to get the best? And I'm not saying either one's right or wrong. I'm just saying it probably has input from both sides. Yeah. One, one other thing I'll, I'll point out was 1887, 
Uh, you've got the high priority statewide pot, and you've got the district grant pot. So one of the things we'll be able to do in the end for you is to break out the scoring. Here's the statewide view of how things sort out, but also within each district, here's how projects in your particular districts sort out based on the scoring, both uh, based on the scoring and criteria. You know, that, that's a great point from the standpoint. That's another reason why we broke it up because you know every district is going to have money. So it's 27 half of our 27 half percent of all the money really isn't this whole lot thing. Are we getting it right between districts? Right. I mean, the other uh, 63 percent of the money, or whatever, 62 and a half, whatever it works out, are going right to the districts. So I have the other thing to point out, and that was part of the reason behind us getting to the district level, the, the district-wide competition. We're really dealing with less than a third of the money. It's important, but it's supposed to be, again, those statewide projects. The rest are at the district level. And so while we may not have it right, it is in the district. So you're not losing out. You're not losing out on all the money. The way it was before, all the money. And that's a great point. I mean, if, if we get it totally wrong, we're going to mess up a third of money. To be not suggesting that, but I'm right. you have to put it in some kind of context. For the economic um, development measures, and this is, uh, as y'all know, this is this is one area that we we really struggled with a lot of coming up with the measures and what makes sense and what room is measuring the potential for economic development. And as we've gone through the pilot and worked with the, the field staff to fill in, you know, what sites did this project benefit? And um, one of the things we realized was um, we needed to clarify what what constitutes an eligible site. Uh, and I'll, I'll give you an example. We, you know, we set a sort of a one-mile buffer around these projects, and let's count up the sites that, that benefit. Uh, in one area, you may say, well, we're going to look at every single vacant piece of land within a mile of this project and, and calculate that if it were developed, this is the square footage of the building that would be on there. Um, whereas another... I don't think they have all, but we've got about 10 minutes to wrap the discussion a couple more slides because of the, the tour and getting you guys changed and everything. It's just so what we need to do is, is really clarify what constitutes a site that is going to benefit from the project. So there has to be some level of commitment. And so we're working on the criteria now to really hone that in. That there has to be some commitment letter or market study or something. It's not just a, a bunch of vacant land around the project. Um, and, and did you want to make cover of the, the, the changes? Thank you. And so we'll be coming back to the board in May. And at May, I expect we're going to, Chad and Tom will be here again. They're going to walk you all through these scores. We are going to do our best to get those scores to you as soon as possible and well in advance of that next meeting. So you're going to get a presentation. We're going to give you information on each project, how it's scored. And uh, we're also in a separate thing that will send recommended changes based on the public comment we've received. So again, some of the colors on the map are in the right weighting typology. In a few places, people have asked for tweaks to those typologies. Um, dealing with some of the issues, Chad's talked about a methodology we're going to come back to you all on as well. One thing I wanted to highlight that may, we may also have in May um, is we've received on three measures 
um, pretty significant feedback about the actual measures we have within them. And so, you know, one of them is we're taking a look at reliability and seeing if there's a way we can develop a measure on an economic development factor area where reliability of the roadway and its speed can be taken into account in that area. I think that's something Mr. Fraylin and some other members have raised um, several times, and we've heard it um, from the public as we've gone out and done our regional meetings. Uh, we've also heard a lot of concern about the environmental um, factor areas, uh, several uh, stakeholders as well as uh, local governments have really expressed concern that we don't take into account any consideration of natural, historic, or cultural resources. They also kind of indicated generally they thought the disadvantaged population acceptability measure was better placed in accessibility rather than in the environmental section. So we're taking a look at that as well to determine if there's a way we can take that into account. And just as a reminder to the board, the reason we first didn't take natural, cultural, or historic resources into account was the NEPA process required by federal law where we examine those issues. Um, some folks have come back to us and said, well, some of our projects actually improve environmental outcomes from where they are today. And then another response that we heard was sometimes even in NEPA, you don't actually mitigate uh, fully the impact. You only partially mitigate it. And if that's the least environmentally damaging practical alternative, you know, it still moves forward. And so there's a strong desire to have that taken into account. Um, and then the accessibility factor area, we did have the accessibility to jobs, which I think there's a lot of consensus around. But then we had accessibility to essential destinations. And I want to just be very candid with the board. There was not a lot of consensus um, around that. Some, everyone wanted to re either redefine essential destinations or to get it out of there. So when we were in Northern Virginia, their regional planning has activity centers. They said, that, well, I don't know what an essential destination is, but let's make the activity centers and the rest of the state doesn't have that. When we were down in uh, this region, they said, well, is Bush Gardens or is the oceanfront, you know, included in that from a tourism perspective? Because we think that's an essential destination. So we're going to review this and try and figure out if there's a way to more objectively capture this. Because um, right now, I think this is one of the more subjective um, areas in the measures that we have. And so we're looking at these three factor areas just overall. And I wanted to give you a heads up. That's something we may come back to the board in May with some recommendations actually changing some of the measures that are in the current um, framework. And again, you know, we're going to be holding six-year improvement program hearings over the next four weeks. We're going to all nine districts. Um, we're really trying to get the word out, and we, we appreciate the board's support and letting a lot of your local partners know that this is their opportunity to talk directly to the secretary and others about their either things they like, dislike, or suggestions they have about this process. And again, in May, we're going to come back to you with the pilot results and, uh, you know, process revisions, and then again, the current schedules come back to the board in June to kind of get the first HB2 process in place. Okay, any, uh, any other questions or comments uh, from Mr. Donahue or the team here? Yeah. I do have some questions. Do you mean to follow up with Nick or? Uh, that's fine. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I don't want to belabor the form. Yeah, yeah, Mr. Chairman, I don't want to believe it either, but this denominator question, what, what are we going to do about that? Are we just going to wait till June and so how we're going to hammer that out? Or what? So, Mr. Chairman, Mr. Franklin, uh, staff's going to come back to the board with a recommendation in May based on the public comment, and I think we're going to look for the board to give us some guidance in. We're going to provide that to you in advance okay. so you all know what the staff recommendation is, and I think we'll look for the board because you'll have that in advance to give us feedback at that May meeting on both that as well as the other types of changes 
that are going to be proposed. We're also compiling a master document of all the public comments we have received, um, which we will be sending um, to the board. We, can get it cleaned up. we will get it cleaned up and we'll get it out to the board so you'll have those things um, in advance. But we are going through all this. And again, the stuff we have at the May meeting, these guys are working very, very hard along with another whole, you know, 10 other folks to really prepare this for you all. And we know you need to get it before that May meeting. And the reason we didn't come with the scores today is we weren't able to run, you know, what if it was in typology B instead of C and things like that. And we, didn't, we wanted to be able to answer all the questions you're gonna have about these scores before we give them to you because we think that's what we owe to this board so that you can evaluate this process and feel like you're making informed decisions. So does this guy not suspect the next meeting, workshop, Nick, on the denominator issue, are we considering an average or a blend of the two as one of the options? Mr. Casper, I believe we're considering all options. Um, we've heard feedback across the board. There are folks who want us to use just the total cost. There are certainly other folks who want us to just use the house bill two cost. And there are some folks who are saying, cut the baby in half. As long as it's not that big. <laughs> Thread the needle. <laughs> and we, also, we have some policy decisions too as to ultimately where you want the scoring to reside. I mean, we have to be so, and that's not a, you know, how I many uh, projects a year, many of the season meetings. I mean, we got all that. We're trying to get the, if we get something uh, out there so that we can really make uh, these policy decisions with some type of guidelines. Okay, thank you, Mr. Johnson. I think uh, where we are today uh, is we're going to suspend uh, the workshop uh, and we'll start tomorrow morning at 8.30 where we will hear from Mr. Lawson on the six-year plan. Uh, what we have today is um, uh, a quick lunch and then uh, those going on the tour, uh, I would suggest it's going to probably rain and so, you know, if you don't want something to get muddy, you can just change clothes. We'll be walking uh, into the tunnel, and uh, if it's uh, if it's muddy, uh, you know, you'll 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 come to the tunnel. With that, we'll suspend the workshop. Come back tomorrow morning at eight thirty. And then again, all those comments, the public comment will be after the workshop, right before the workshop.